I'm Mark Lynch, and this is a special edition of the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. The POMEPS podcast typically hosts conversations with scholars about their recent academic publications on the Middle East and North Africa. But the ongoing war in Gaza and the broader political crisis among Israelis and Palestinians impacts so many members of our scholarly field and the people and communities we study. So I felt both an intellectual and a moral obligation to put together something different, a special edition of the podcast featuring short, research-based conversations with a wide range of scholars from within the POMAPS network, with a particular emphasis on Palestinian perspectives on their own current political reality. The conversations range widely across the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, uh, which is multifaceted and cannot be reduced as just a war between Israel and Hamas. Current crisis began with protests against Israeli seizures of homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in eastern Jerusalem, quickly spread into wide-ranging Palestinian mobilization across the West Bank, Jerusalem, and remarkably into the Palestinian communities inside of Israel. Those protests spiraled into communal conflict across Israeli cities uh, in shocking new forms of uh, intercommunal engagement. Israeli incursions into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem shocked Muslims and observers far beyond Palestine. The crisis then evolved into war as Hamas fired rockets into Israel. Israel carried out a massive and as of now still ongoing bombing and artillery campaign against Gaza, which has taken a devastating human and material toll. Even if a ceasefire takes hold, this promises little more than a return to a deeply problematic status quo, which looks increasingly unsustainable. Now, before I go to our guests, I'd like to offer some reflections of my own. In 2014, during the last Israeli war on Gaza, I wrote an article for the Washington Post monkey cage entitled Political Science After Gaza. Back then I said, quote, Israel's latest war with Gaza has already killed more than a thousand people, including hundreds of children, while showing few signs of significantly changing anything fundamental. The dynamics of its asymmetric conflict, half-hearted ceasefire talks, civilian suffering, American inefficacy, Arab impotence, and apoplectic public arguments, it all feels painfully familiar. Indeed, besides the immediacy of the stomach-churning images of death and devastation circulated over social media, much of the analysis of the war could probably be recycled from 2008 without changing much beyond the dateline. But that very stasis actually may be masking interesting questions. How has this conflict remained so impervious to the dizzying turbulence happening everywhere else in the region? Why are we still having the same arguments in the same terms when so much has palpably changed? What changes in regional and international politics are likely to seriously destabilize the situation and which will be comfortably absorbed into the status quo? Will we soon look back at the long years of relative stagnation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as something akin to the false stability of Arab authoritarian regimes circa 2010? And here we are again. And honestly, much of it feels familiar, but a lot of it also feels new this time around. There's different things going on. The ground is shifting. There's little precedent for the rapid and large scale diffusion of protest from uh, Jerusalem and the occupied territories into the Palestinian communities inside of Israel. There's a very real and very potent crystallization of a unified Palestinian national identity, which has been seemingly absent for many years. Uh, we have the absence of even a pretense of calling for a return to the corpse of the peace process or the search for a two-state solution. But there also seems to be a seemingly complete absence of any new ideas for diplomatic engagement. Ideas like calling for a settlement freeze or for new negotiations seem obviously inadequate to the new realities, but nothing has yet emerged to take its place. 
We see the near complete absence for the Palestinian Authority and President Mahmoud Abbas from the scene um, with an alternative younger Palestinian leadership struggling to emerge but finding few institutional channels to do so. We see increasingly critical positions towards Israel and the Democratic Party and the American left and a Congress which has been remarkably assertive in terms of challenging the White House uh, for its position in the crisis. We see a very interesting new trends in public narratives, Palestinian narratives breaking through into the Western media in ways that it hasn't before and a diminishing return. So on old rhetoric and, and old types of arguments. Uh, Israel's perpetual political stalemate, its steady political shift rightward has raised new questions about what Israel actually is and what it wants and whether the old discussions of its choices between being Jewish and democratic are still applicable. Um, we see new questions about the boycott, divestment and sanctions, the BDS movement, and whether uh, what is happening between Israel and the Palestinians today could galvanize something along the lines of the movement against apartheid uh, in South Africa, a, a discussion which has been further shaped by uh, reports released by Betselem and by Human Rights Watch, and which has seen the normalization of previously taboo conversations about uh, the nature of Israel's control over, uh, the, over the occupied territories. You have the newly watchful eye of the International Criminal Court, which has spoken about taking on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian case, and uh, some at least believe could become a path towards accountability for war crimes. Uh, alongside this rapidly evolving doctrine of the responsibility to protect, which so many wanted to see in, uh, uh, brought, to, brought to bear in Syria and increasingly in Yemen, um, but people ask, why does this not apply to Gazans? Why do Gazans uh, not have a right to protect themselves or a right to, uh, to be protected? Um, we have the normalization of relations between the UAE and Bahrain with Israel, which seems to have done little to constrain Israeli behavior and has done little to prevent a surge of public Arab anger at Israel and support for Palestinians, uh, showing once again that the Arabs do still care about Palestine, no matter how much American, Arab and Israeli policymakers might prefer otherwise. And a particular interest uh, to me and to many people in, in uh, our scholarly network has been the rapid move towards the normalization of discussing this concept of a one state reality in which all of the territory and population, Israel, Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, all of it understood as a single political entity with variations in the nature and degree of citizenship rights, mobility, security, freedom, and control. Discussions of occupation as a temporary condition have faded after more than half a century, and this opens the door to pretty urgent questions of what this political entity actually is on the ground, in reality, and how uh, the territory and the people are governed um, in, again, on the ground and in reality. Those are questions which Palestinian scholars have been engaging for years. Um, a group of scholars led by Nathan Brown, Michael Barnett, Shibli Talhami, and myself attempted to make a small contribution to this last year with the POMEP Studies publication. And, and we've drawn on those scholarly networks uh, for this podcast. Um, and so I brought together 16 scholars, um, a large number uh, from diverse different perspectives. Um, I asked each of them to focus on a single question drawn from their research expertise and their publications. 
I could easily have spent hours talking with every one of them, but I limited each to about seven minutes so that we could hear from as many of them as possible and get as many different uh, angles into the current, uh, the current crisis as we could. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And now we'll turn to those conversations. Our first guest is Yusuf Manayer of the University of Maryland and the Arab Center in Washington. Uh, he was the author last year of an influential article in Foreign Affairs called, There Will Be a One-State Solution, but what kind of state will it be? Uh, Yusuf, thank you for joining us. Before this all began, uh, you published an article in Foreign Affairs and also one in our collection at POMEPS on this idea of a one-state reality and this inevitability of a one-state. Uh, now that we're where we are, uh, how, do, how do you see things now? How have things changed in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was writing about those things, what I was trying to convey to folks is that the reality on the ground is a reality of, of one state dominating over the entirety of, of the territory. Uh, and so from, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, there was effectively one state uh, that uh, rules over that space um, and, you know, rules over Palestinians within that space uh, in a number of different ways, um, affording them um, limited or no rights at all, depending on where they are. Um, and, you know, that's been the case for a really long time. That's, that's not new. And, uh, you know, we have sort of had this impression that the, the occupation that began in 1967 is supposed to be this, this temporary situation. Um, but everything we've seen since then indicates that it's permanent. Uh, including, you know, Israel's posture in the occupied territory um, through its through its settlement building. Um, and when one looks back at the history, you know, the state of Israel was established in 1948. Um, it's 73 years old now. It's been an occupying power in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and Jerusalem for over 50 of those 73 years. So this is far more the norm uh, than it is the uh, than it is the exception. Um, and I think when one looks historically too, you know, you see that in the brief period between 1948 and 1967, um, outside of that, there really wasn't a time when the territory was divided and governed as, as, as separate entities. In other words, the, the cities and towns of the coastal plains were never governed separately from uh, the uh, cities and towns of the hills. Uh, of uh, the the West Bank, this is a this this green line uh, is an artificial division in a territory that has long been cohesive politically, economically, demographically. Um, we're forced to confront this one state reality today, and I think you know the conversation around a sort of two state peace process has kept up this myth uh, of um, the possibility of partition, and that has fallen apart apart in recent years. And I think what we've seen um, in most recent weeks and months uh, is that increasingly Palestinians are starting to act out uh, in this one state reality in ways that, you know, they have not in a really, really long time. So let, let's talk about then the Sheikh Jarrah protests and how that has kind of galvanized uh, this kind of renewed, it seems to me at least, very much a renewed sense of shared identity. 
Yeah, so I mean, many people sort of look at Sheikh Jarrah as the sort of immediate um, uh, cause of of some of the large scale mobilizations that we saw. I th I think you know it it was maybe the 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 most recent uh, important event in a series of events, and one of the reasons why it was important is because um, Palestinians everywhere, whether they are inside Israel or in Gaza or in the West Bank or in Jerusalem, where this is taking place, or in refugee camps outside of the country uh, or elsewhere in exile, every single Palestinian can identify with the experience of being forced from their homes by the Israeli state. Um, uh, add to that the fact that it was happening in um, uh, Jerusalem, which of course has tremendous significance. Um, it was a, a event that was taking place at a time of tremendous frustration, uh, both with uh, their prospects for the future, uh, their leadership. Um, and because of that, um, I think you saw a scale and scope of mobilization among Palestinians from the river to the sea that um, you know absolutely rejected this paradigm of partition. Um, and you know people are out in the streets in all of these towns and cities throughout the land, um, raising one flag um, and uh, you know uh, opposing this this singular system of discrimination. Um, so I think that is something that is, you know, has has transformational potential in this moment. But out there on the streets, then we're seeing these uh, the rise in communal conflict and the severe inequalities in terms of the policing of these protests. Well, yes, we are. And I think that is, um, you know, a very scary sort of uh, development. But if one, um, you know, if, if one looks a little bit deeper and a little bit before this, there were signs of this emerging for some time, you know, among Palestinian citizens of Israel in um, recent years, they have mobilized politically around uh, one main issue, and that is the failure uh, of uh, Israeli police to adequately provide security within their communities. Um, and this is something that, um, you know, was one of the main issues for Palestinian citizens of Israel in recent Israeli elections and ended up, um, you know, dividing the community uh, politically with part of them uh, backing, you know, a faction that said they would work with an Israeli government and of course another saying that they wouldn't. On, on the election day in Israel in March, um, there was right around that time uh, another murder, um, including murders by Israeli police, by the way, uh, of Palestinian citizens of Israel that led to masses of people going out in the streets carrying Palestinian flags um, and chanting about the uh, beloved homeland, again, inside Israel. And I think this represented then uh, the fact that, um, you know, these Palestinians were mobilizing in ways that rejected the framework of engaging with the Israeli government as Israeli citizens, uh, but rather that they needed to mobilize as Palestinians um, to uh, work against this singular system that's affecting Palestinians inside Israel, inside the West Bank, inside Gaza, inside Jerusalem. There's there's no separate issues, and I think that's that. This is a single issue, and I think that's uh, what is so significant here. And it seems like things changed very, very quickly. But what you're saying is that uh, there's long antecedents. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, people are perhaps most familiar with, um, you know, the situation, in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, where, you know, Israel rules over Palestinians um, through its military occupation, through martial law. But the reality is that, you know, that 
that martial law started inside Israel with Israel's uh, rule over Palestinian citizens from 1949 to 1966. There's only been a six-month period in the 73-year history of the state of Israel where it was not using martial law to rule over Palestinians somewhere in the land. Um, and so, uh, you know, there is a deep, deep history uh, of, um, uh, you know, oppression and abuse from the Israeli state towards Palestinian citizens in Israel. Um, it's evolved over time, obviously. It's looked different in different moments, um, but uh, it's very deeply rooted. We now hear from Donna O'Curd of University of Richmond. She's the author of the Cambridge University Press book, Polarized and Demobilized, Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine. And she's recently been researching political mobilization and activism in Jerusalem and the West Bank. So Donna, you've been studying Palestinian mobilization at the grassroots level for a number of years now. What do you see in terms of where this new round of mobilization came from and what sustains it? Yeah, so um, I um, I focus in my I, a lot in my work on mobilization in the West Bank and how um, it has actually been quite demobilized and and the processes that led to that kind of demobilization there, both political and geographic fragmentation. What we're seeing in this situation, and we you know I I touch upon this in some of my earlier work as well, like it's it's the fact that this has emerged with Jerusalem as kind of like the you know the 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 crucial moving point, you know, uh, point or like space for organizing because Jerusalem's relationship and, and Palestinians in Jerusalem and their relationship to the Israeli occupation is quite different and, and, and much more direct, I would say, than in some of the ways that Palestinians in the West Bank are engaging with the, with, or interacting with the mm -hmm. occupation. Um, and so that gives people in Jerusalem unique opportunities as well to organize because they're, you know, um, directly, you know, uh, facing the Israeli occupation and not beholden to the same levels of political or geographic fragmentation that's, uh, you know, present in the West Bank or the blockade in Gaza. And so they have, you know, unique opportunities that they have been able to capitalize on in the past. Um, I've mentioned before the, the 2014 um, uh, protests against uh, the murder of Mohammed Bukhder and then the 2017 um, protests against the Al-Aqsa restrictions. And I would say that those moments were kind of cumulative. Um, um, they uh, taught people how to organize in a lot of ways. Um, and we're seeing familiar faces, um, you know, be, be more involved this time around as well. Um, so there's kind of that underlying like organizing infrastructure that's being built over time um, because, you know, Jerusalemites have these this very specific um, uh, opportunity to organize that others don't. Um, but then this time around, there was also kind of this like, just, uh, you know, a perfect storm of, of, of issues coming around at the same time that also mobilized people. Um, so it was first the restrictions on the old city and people, um, you know, not being able to be in public spaces. And like, there was like kind of an um, uh, unexplained repression and crackdown. Like I still don't necessarily understand what the Israeli security forces were attempting to achieve on that on that front. Um, and then at the same time, we're having the Sheikh Jarrah protests, um, where we have kind of a new generation of activists that are quite active on like Instagram and TikTok, and very galvanizing um, uh, for the, the local Palestinian community. And so those two kind of elements at the same time, and then their calls to protest and their calls 
for people to kind of join them in, in, in solidarity reached farther than Jerusalem. Um, so we had uh, more um, you know, engagement from Palestinian citizens of Israel. Not that this has not happened in the past, but to this degree, I don't think we've seen it um, to, 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 this, to this kind of level. Um, so we saw like that really impressive um, action on the highway where they, you know, the Palestinian citizens of Israel were blocked. So the Palestinians from Jerusalem came and blocked the other side and were just like ferrying people across. Um, and they blocked the entire highway one um, that connects Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and Yaffa. So it was, uh, it was quite something. Um, and I, you know, even now with the war on Gaza and, and um, some of the lynch mobs we saw and some of all of that kind of violence that we've seen, we're seeing kind of the ramifications of that initial point of contact where now we have a general strike across all of historic Palestine. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I know some people, you know, chafe at the word unprecedented, but we really have not seen something yeah. at this level for, for quite some time. So um, do you, do yeah. you see this infrastructure that you're describing? Is it, is it kind of informal personal networks? Are there organizations behind it? Like how would you describe this infrastructure of mobilization? So at the Jerusalem level, there's, it's, it's really relying on personal connections, social groups, um, particular family, like, you know, family networks telling each other WhatsApp or whatever. Um, and, and that's how people are getting the word out. And, and it's very like localized in Jerusalem. Um, but there are organizations, um, they're not leading by any means, but they're facilitating. Mm -hmm. um, um, and th they are present. We see like activists from grassroots al Quds. We see like these kinds of organizations that are already working on kind of, um, um, you know, um, engaging the community across uh, different parts of Jerusalem. And then, you know, activists within these kinds of organizations, also some of them are Palestinian citizens of Israel. So they're bringing in that kind of connection as well. Um, and again, not to say that they, you know, masterminded it or anything, it really was very mm -hmm. quite organic, but having that kind of, uh, these kinds of organizations like ready to help and facilitate and stand in solidarity and call for action. And, and um, yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah. that has been very helpful as well. Now, so when you talk about the, uh, the, the Palestinians in Jerusalem directly facing the occupation, uh, you're, you're contrasting that implicitly or explicitly to the situation of Palestinians in the West Bank who are confronting the Palestinian Authority. And, you, and you've written quite a lot, your book, you know, about how the role that the PA plays in the West Bank. Say a little bit about that and, and what that does to the possibilities for Palestinians in the West Bank to join in these kinds of um, mobilizations. Yeah, yeah. So um, after the Oslo Accords, and particularly after the Second Intifada, the um, geographic fragmentation of the West Bank has like taken on new forms. Like people are really, really quite fragmented, like checkpoints between cities and things like this. So that obviously imposes like restrictions on the ability to organize. Like if you want to do a protest outside of like your little bubble in Ramallah, like it's it's there are costs imposed. You might not be able to. Um, but on top of that, because of the Palestinian Authority. Um, a lot of Palestinians, a lot of Palestinian, you know, thinkers, activists, things like that. I mean, they're also kind of derailed in some way. Like they're, you know, they're, the political parties are more concerned about these governance issues and who is in power and who's in control. And they're not addressing some of these like immediate, you know, uh, uh, threats and, 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 and needs. Um, and Palestinians themselves, like in the West Bank, like can uh, have been kind of like, 
um, victims of, of kind of a direct attempt to politically fragment them as well. So like, um, you know, they, those who work with the PA and those who don't work with the PA and th these kinds of divisions have, have emerged a lot more in the West Bank than obviously we see in, the, in Jerusalem because a minority of Jerusalemites actually work with the PA um, or, and, and the PA is obviously not allowed also to function right. in Jerusalem. Um, so, so there's kind of on that, on those two levels, not only the geographic fragmentation, but also the political divisiveness and, and, and polarization that we see in the West Bank has um, um, limited people's ability to kind of, you know, engage in collective action across like large segments of the population. And then on top of that, the Palestinian Authority has been quite repressive, especially after 2007. So it's like, you're not just dealing with the Israeli occupation and the risks that come with that, which obviously they're, you know, they don't care if it's area A, B, or C, they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, do a raid, they're gonna arrest student activists, they're gonna do whatever they want. But you're also dealing with the Palestinian Authority that has like a cybercrime law that like is, is, you know, um, cracking down on people for like expressing dissent um, and uh, sometimes, you know, obviously actively coordinating with the Israeli occupation um, to to um, maintain calm. Um, so Basil al-Araj is one example of in 2017 of, a, of, a, of an activist who was kind of like a very good example of how the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli occupation kind of, you know, <laughs> coordinated to, uh, yeah, murder him. So um, so I guess one last question then is like in that context, I mean, what would it take for this wave of mobilization to turn into something recognizably an intifada, something, a long-term sustained mobilization, which really challenges uh, the prevailing structures? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and I think it has to do with like how people use the term intifada, like the first intifada um, was known be for these kinds of economic strikes and these like highly coordinated tactics with the unified national leadership of the uprising. The second intifada didn't have something like that. It was quite fragmented, um, but we still called it an intifada because like long lasting, even though it was like using much more like armed tactics right. and armed resistance than um, unarmed resistance. Um, so I, you know, we can say that this is like a you know, of incidents of mass mobilization and incidents of protest. And we don't, I don't necessarily know how long the protests are going to last. But again, these are cumulative moments. Um, so even if this doesn't last years, this, this is like a very, like, crucial, um, crucial development, I would say, in, in Palestinian mobilization in the future. Um, even if this one kind of dies out, maybe in a few weeks, mm -hmm. Palestinian mobilization in the future will look differently. Um, and I would argue it's going to come much more quickly. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answered your question, um, <laughs> but no, sufficiently. It's, it's, really, but, it's a really difficult yeah. one to know, because as you said, we mean different things when we say intifada, and it's just like invoked as a magic word. Um, but what we're seeing right now on the ground, I think is worth understanding on its own merits. Right. And, and, and we're seeing, you know, glimpses of this intifada. We're seeing like this, this strike that we're seeing um, so, you know, that is all, you know, glimpses of the tactics we once used. Um, but we, we should also, like you said, we should also like, just take it for the moment it is because Palestinians also are, you know, are not in the same conditions that they were, um, under the first intifada. They're facing different challenges. They're facing years of fragmentation. That's, that's going to take some time to, um, move, move past. And the reason I say this is because a lot of times people become demoralized when, when they ask me this question and I say like, you know, it might not be, but this is still important because, you know, um, it's still important. Like, even if right. 
even if it's not like this long lasting, like, you know, uprising that upends the entire Israeli state system. <laughs> we now turn to Nadav Shalev of the University of Wisconsin. He's the author of Evolving Nationalism, Homeland, Identity, and Religion in Israel, 1925 to 2005. More recently, he's the article of Homelands, Shifting Borders and Territorial Disputes. Uh, Nadav, thanks for joining us. So Nadav, you've been writing for years about how ideas about borders, about homelands, and how they change. And when you look at things that are happening now, the seeming death of a two-state solution, Palestinian mobilization among citizens of Israel, do you see anything happening which leads you to think that we might be entering into one of those periods where things change? Uh, I think, if anything, we're entering into a period where uh, the possibility of change is lower. Uh, so um, there had, for example, there had been inklings or these possibilities of change in uh, even what Hamas would, was willing to settle for. Right? But the uh, Hamas's ability to successfully link its goals with uh, what's going on in Jerusalem with the mobilization of Palestinians, not just in the West Bank, but also in Israel, in Israel proper, uh, makes it seem less likely, right, that they would settle for a, a two-state solution, reinforces the, the strength of those inside the movement who maintain a maximalist territorial demand. And I think that moves us further away from the possibility of a, of a two-state solution. What about these like divides uh, that we see between like what is n natural and normal? I mean, when you see Palestinian citizens of Israel identifying with Palestinians in the West Bank, you're right, that does make a two-state solution seem farther away. But does it lead to any kind of reimagining of things looking back at uh, you know, the, the history of the Israeli and Palestinian national movements? You know, I think it, um, in, a, in a sense, harkens back to the sort of pre-48 vision of, the, of who the people are, right? Uh, but I think there will be, you know, I think it will, again, sharpen the battle lines within Palestinian society between those who make this distinction between Palestinians who became Israeli citizens and those who didn't, right? And there'll be an argument about, are we one people? Are we two people? Are we one people that are going to be living in, in two states? And I think the outcome of that political battle inside Palestinian society will shape the, the, the extent to which political plans for territorial division or not resonate with the population or the, and the hurdles that they have to overcome. What about in Israel and um, you know, changing ideas about uh, what Israel's appropriate borders are? Yeah, so I think to the extent that there is more violence across the border, that is between Gaza and um, and Israel proper, it, it reduces support for maintaining that border, right? If it doesn't matter where you live, right? Or if violence continues despite having a, a border, then the story that the Israeli left tells that we'll withdraw from territory and we'll, get, and we'll get peace becomes harder to sustain. That story becomes harder to sustain. Opposing stories will become stronger and read the story of the right wing. So to the extent that the violence undermines the ability of the Israeli left to build a winning political coalition, it pushes us, I think, also further away from, uh, uh, from this. 
And you've been tracking this for years in, in, your, in your earlier book, in your, in your more recent book, um, kind of the internal debates about, you know, what, what and where is the Jewish homeland where, and, and all of that. Have you been seeing things in recent years, not just this immediate crisis, but in recent years that make you think that these are being rethought? Um, I think sadly, sadly, no, right? I mean, I see, I see um, uh, a decline. Well, so yes and no. Right? I see a decline in the uh, appeal of dividing the territory, right? And um, I think in some cases, even a resurgence of older, more maximalist views, right? That are kind of piggybacking on the rise of the really sort of radical right in, uh, in Israel. Um, and so I think that there are some, there are some changes, but I think that to the extent that um, the promise, if I can call it that, or the potential of the, of the peace process of the 1990s uh, dissipates with that support for um, redrawing the borders of the homeland also declines, right? Cause it's not, it's not successful. It's not leading uh, either Israelis or Palestinians to get what they what they want, and without those, without the reinforcement that comes from success, sort of changed visions are going to going to dissipate. What about the push in the opposite direction towards more annexationist types of approaches? Well, so there, I actually think there's not a change in what they want. There's a change in the prominence of those ideas and their political standing in society. So you know, nobody who has, you know. Uh, nobody. For the most part, the annexationists have always been saying that, right? They just were uh, weaker and more marginal. And I think the failure of the peace process of the 90s to lead to tangible results weakens their opponents and allows them to gain power and, uh, and prominence. It is true that they're saying things now in public and it's being echoed by a much more prominent and wider audience that were being said in private before. And that is a meaningful, meaningful change, uh, at least in their power, but not so much in what they're, in what they're saying. And how does that resonate with this like seemingly perpetual political crisis, election after election and inability to form stable governments? Does that help the spread of those or the kind of the move into the mainstream of these kinds of ideas? Um, I think, you know, I, I think that the spread of those ideas makes political compromise across that, those differences harder to achieve, right? So it's hard, I think one of the reasons it's harder to form a center government in Israel or even a center right government in Israel uh, is because, um, you know, the, the, the rise of this radical annexationist group, um, you know, is less willing to compromise, less willing to form coalitions with people who disagree with them. I think that, um, you know, when Netanyahu is the left edge of the coalition, right, it's hard to sort of build bridges with other groups in, uh, in Israeli society. And I think that the, uh, the folks who uh, would want to annex the territories, but are not necessarily ideologically committed to doing so. And so there's some constellations where they might withdraw from territory or agree to, to negotiate. Uh, it makes it hard for them to cohabitate in a single government with so More is that kind of a mutually reinforcing dynamic then? Yep. 
Well, it's a, it's a pretty pessimistic vision that as, as we were talking about before. Um, so, but given that there's so many other things that seem to be shifting around Israel and, uh, and within Palestinian society, Israeli society, can, what happens if this stalemate just kind of continues indefinitely? Stalemate politically inside of Israel, stalemate between Israel and the Palestinians. I mean, can that really continue for, you know, indefinitely? Uh, sadly, I think it can continue for a long period of time. I mean, I think the, um, uh, especially with regard to the, the uh, sort of morass between Israel and in Palestine. I mean, I think we're in a situation where Israel has a tremendous amount of power. The Palestinians, right, have very little. Other uh, efforts by the Palestinians have failed, like Abbas's attempt to pivot to a diplomatic strategy and go through the United Nations. That hasn't really led to any significant political fruit. Uh, uh, and so uh, and Hamas remains isolated and trapped in the, uh, in the Gaza Strip. And with very little leverage over Israel, except for the occasional use of violence. And so I think that there will be, I, I suspect without some external shock, right? We're gonna be in a situation where uh, every once in a while, there'll be something that triggers uh, an uproar of violence. Something, it could be something idiosyncratic or right, what have you. Um, and, uh, Hamas responds by exercising the only leverage it has, right? Maybe we'll fire rockets into, into Israel or do something else. Israel will retaliate for a while. That will lead to tremendous destruction and suffering, right? For certainly for the people in Gaza, for Israelis subject to the, uh, to the rocket fire. And then, right, things will calm down. And then without something that fundamentally changes the, the equation of power, every few years, we're gonna have another one of these. Maha Nasser, the University of Arizona, is the author of Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World. Uh, Maha, thank you for joining us. So Maha, you've been studying Palestinian citizens of Israel for many years. Uh, why do you think that things are happening now the way that they are? That's a great question. So as a lot of your listeners probably know, there's been a lot of structural discrimination against Palestinian citizens of Israel. That goes back really to the founding of the state in terms of land confiscation, in terms of discrimination on various levels. I think what's happening now can be traced back to a turning point about 20 years ago with the rise of the Second Intifada. Uh, in, October of 2000, in October of 2000, a number of Palestinian citizens of Israel, thousands in fact, took to the streets in solidarity with Palestinians who were rising up in the occupied territories. They were unarmed protests. Uh, in solidarity with Palestinians. And in October of 2000, Israeli police forces shot and killed 13 of those unarmed protesters. 12 of them were citizens of Israel. And that was a real turning point, I think, for a lot of Palestinians in Israel who up until that point, and especially in the 1990s, were being told over and over again by their leaders that the path towards their betterment lay through working within the Israeli political system through the Knesset, through institutions, state institutions and so forth. And that what was happening in the occupied territories was something different. Right. So after that, uh, the um, Israeli state set up a commission uh, to investigate and concluded that Palestinian citizens of Israel have indeed faced a great deal of discrimination 
and proposed a number of uh, investments and other kinds of solutions. They've been taken up, I'd say, half-heartedly and to no real effect, frankly. Meanwhile, you have two other developments that have been working at cross purposes. One is the rise of the Israeli right that is more blatantly racist and frankly fascist in terms of their discussion uh, and their treatment of Palestinian citizens of Israel. A survey came out just a few years ago uh, that showed a rise in the number of Israelis who favor the idea of forcibly transferring Palestinian citizens of Israel outside the country and transfer is a euphemism for expulsion, ethnic cleansing. So that's happening. And at the same time, material conditions for Palestinian citizens of Israel have not improved by and large. Individuals who are able to move up the social ladder have been able to do so, but by and large, poverty is rampant, educational and economic opportunities are minimal, and there's been a rise in crime and gun violence in a lot of the predominantly Palestinian towns and, and um, cities in the country. So these things have led a younger generation of Palestinian citizens of Israel to no longer think of integration or, or sort of um, activism within state apparatuses as being the path forward. What about uh, political developments over the last few years, like the success of the joint list and uh, the, the current efforts by the Islamist party to you know, play a role in the political system that seems to work at cross purposes? It does. So I think what we see with the joint list is uh, a kind of ebb and flow in its fortunes. We've had four elections in the last two years, and the joint list uh, has fared sort of higher in some elections and lower in others, depending on the political circumstances of the time. And frankly, depending on voter turnout, when voter turnout was higher, such as in the third election, the joint list did better. And there was a concerted effort in that third election to bring out the so-called Arab vote to vote against Bibi, to try to oust Netanyahu. But because they were unable to join a, part, a coalition or really exert any meaningful, um, sort of anything meaningful within that, that coalition building, and ultimately, of course, coalition wasn't made, there is a lot of disappointment with the belief. There is a lot of disappointment in the joint list, and a growing sense that the joint list actually isn't going to um, solve their problem, solve the problems of Palestinians in the country. So, in the fourth election that happened just a couple months ago, we saw voter turnout was lower. The joint list didn't do as well, and then you had this breakaway party that our own party, led by Mansour Abbas that was essentially running on bread and butter issues, saying, don't worry about identity, don't worry about national um, salvation. I'm going to form a coalition with whoever I can to reduce crime and to improve economic fortunes. But ultimately that too has turned out to be folly. So essentially Palestinians are looking around, especially that younger generation and saying, Knesset elections aren't the way to go. Municipal elections are also limited in their abilities because municipal leaders can only do so much. So we need another, we need another plan, we need another, uh, another course of action. So that's a lot of converging streams. And so then how does that come together into this kind of mobilization that we've seen now and this uh, kind of embrace of a Palestinian identity, which, which seems quite, quite exceptional? 
Yeah, I think what we're seeing now is one additional thread that I haven't yet talked about, which is the social connectivity Hmm. of Palestinian citizens of Israel with other Palestinians, both in the 67 territories and around the world. And that mobilization through social networks and other forms of networks is another major thread. So I would say that Palestinian identity and even the terminology, so younger Palestinians don't call themselves citizens of Israel, they call themselves 48 Palestinians. That's been happening also over the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. but it was largely below the radar of most political science observers or international observers. But we can think of um, popular culture, we can think of like hip hop group Dem, for example, and they were at the forefront of a whole generation of Palestinian cultural producers 48 Palestinians, as they would say, who are expressing themselves in terms of Palestinian identity and who are identifying the discrimination that's enacted against them in terms of anti-Palestinian racism, anti-Palestinianism more broadly. So they're connecting through social media and other forms and other means with Palestinians, Palestinian youth in the West Bank, in Gaza Strip, in Jerusalem, in the diaspora. And also they're connecting, and this is I think something else that's important and underreported, they're also very keeping a very close eye on other youth movements around the world, hmm. Black Lives Matter movement, climate justice movements. And they're looking at how those other movements are also using social justice, popular protests and other means to really put their issues on the national and international agenda. So you see this is likely to be uh, an enduring sort of thing and not just like a momentary response to uh, an immediate crisis. I think so. We may see ebbs and flows uh, in the coming weeks and months, but I don't think we can put this genie back in the bottle. Yesterday was the May 18th was the uh, general strike, Mm -hmm. Palestinian day of general strike. Palestinians inside the Green Line fully participated Uh, 58 Palestinians were arrested by Israeli police for taking part in the various protests. And Adala, which is the civil rights organization, reported today that they've received a number of calls from Palestinian citizens of Israel who've been fired from their jobs for participating in the strike. So this is going to precipitate another wave of action that I think is going to happen. At the same time, you have these uh, extremist Jewish vigilante groups that are also part of the story that we see them in Jerusalem, of course, and we know about them in the West Bank, but they're also inside the Green Line, they're inside Israel, inside these so-called mixed cities, which aren't really mixed, but are ghettoized. Um, And so we see these thugs going through into quote unquote Arab neighborhoods, looking for people to beat up. I don't see that going away either. And so that's going to mobilize counter protests and so forth. Nathan Brown is my colleague at George Washington University. He's also at the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace, and he's a prolific author on Palestinian politics. And Nathan, thanks for joining us. Just before the uh, the outbreak of this most recent crisis, you published an article which uh, pointed to the importance of the Palestinian elections. Those were canceled. Uh, and now everything which has happened, what does it mean in your opinion for Palestinian politics? Well, it's always tempting to, uh... 
um, latch on to the events of the moment and say, see it as a turning point. But I think this really is a turning point. I mean, what you had a month ago was Palestinian factions who are coming to terms with each other, who are talking about breathing some life back into some Palestinian national institutions, the Legislative Council, you know, even the, even the PLO and so on. And, and that was never a process that was going to be easier or likely to be all that complete. But that's where things were going. Now we see completely different environment, um, not simply in terms of what's going on among between Fatah and Hamas and, and Fatah being basically weak and discredited, Hamas seizing the initiative, but in terms of the erasure of the green line and uh, borders between Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza and so on, there's, this is a really a Palestinian national a moment uh, of, of a time that of a kind that we haven't really seen. Maybe the outbreak of the second Defada, you saw a brief episode like this, where you had essentially a united Palestinian people. Um, this is different, I think, and this is gonna be more sustained and it's going to have longer lasting impact. Well, let me ask you about this on two different dimensions then. So first on the Palestinian side, you have this new energy coming out, um, which is just palpable, the, the, this upsurge of youth activism and the like in which the major parties seem to be largely irrelevant. Um, so what does that mean in terms of anything long-term? Is it just a moment or do you see it as something really challenging the nature of Palestinian political uh, processes? Well, I, first I would say not all factions are, are sort of irrelevant. Hamas has taken the initiative. So it's clearly a player. It's a player that has, I think, alienated a lot of Palestinians by making this such a military conflict, but it's also it's also gotten some support. The For the others, I think it's, it's an open question. What the first Intifada saw was an upsurge of grassroots activism, which was able to sustain itself and really change the nature of Palestinian politics. The second Intifada wasn't like that. It was uh, essentially, uh, Palestinians talk about being militarized, taken over by the factions and so on. It's an open question now whether this youth activism, and it's not just youth, I mean, but it's this, this new spirit of activism can sustain itself, can organize itself in, in, in new forms. It's certainly able to shake up the situation, gather international attention, gather, uh, provoke Israeli responses, um, and, and that sort of thing of a, of, a, of a kind that Palestinians haven't seen for uh, for decades. Uh, but it's not clear to me what whether this can sustain itself in any organizational form. It will certainly be a memorable moment for a generation of Palestinians. But what organizational form it takes over the long term is still an open question. Do you... I mean, can the Palestinian Authority survive this? Um, and what would it mean if it didn't? Well, in the sense the Palestinian Authority has shown it can survive anything or it was dead long ago, depending on your perspective. I mean, there's a set of administrative structures that run, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 schools and, you know, here are some court cases and so on. And that is going to continue. In a sense, you can trace some of these structures back to the Ottoman Empire, you know. Um, so, so, so those aren't necessarily going to go away. I think the Palestinian Authority as sort of the centerpiece of a Palestinian national project died about a decade or two ago. Um, the real question is not, will it disappear completely, 
But will there be some kind of Palestinian national movement that will be able to express itself outside of the PA, whether the PLO will be reborn, whether some kind of grassroots activism uh, will eventually sort of take over Palestinian national institutions has happened actually in the 1960s. Um, so the Palestinian Authority is either um, um, long dead or, or just routinely decaying. I don't, I don't think its fate is what occupies the attention of most Palestinians right now. There's a maybe too much attention paid to particular labels and, and what you call things, but what are the prospects for an intifada uh, of this actually uh, crystallizing into a long-term sustained popular mobilization that challenges both the Israeli and the Palestinian uh, status quo? That's a, that's a very, very difficult question. Um, in a sense, what we're seeing looks like the beginning of the first two intifadas, maybe even actually more intense than the, than, than the uh, first one. Um, I think maybe the thing to watch for will be, number one, what happens kind of on a grassroots level, are there structures that are organizing these protests that just aren't visible to outsiders? And, and there, I just don't know. And Palestinians who are on the scenes can probably talk about this. You know, I speculated earlier, for instance, that the, uh, with uh, my colleague at Carnegie, Zaha Hassan, it was possible, for instance, that grassroots responses to COVID and to the, uh, to the, um, public health measures might create some kind of grassroots organization. It's not clear to me whether that's happened. The other thing to watch is to see whether the kind of um, links that we've seen emerge among Israeli Palestinians, among Jerusalemites, among West Bank and Gaza Palestinians, whether those are just sort of the creature of, uh, of, of, of this moment or whether there will actually be sustained contact among them. Um, that would be something that we've never really seen seen before. There's all there's a common Palestinian national identity, yes, but in terms of structures that actually um, pass ideas, um, pass organizations, even pass kind of uh, resources and leadership among these divisions, that's been missing. And if that emerges, that will be a game changer. And I guess that leads to the last question then, which is this genuinely extraordinary um, uh, mobilization by Palestinian citizens of Israel and you know, how does that change the game in terms of Israeli politics as well as Palestinian politics? Oh gosh, I mean, I think for Israelis, this is a um, this is a scary moment. I mean, for I should say for uh, for Israeli Jews, I mean, essentially problems that they had seen bottled up in the West Bank, bottled up in Gaza, and ones that they could actually simply tune out. Um, except for these periodic wars with Gaza, the rocket wars and Israeli response with Gaza every four or five years or so. Most of the rest of the time they could they could tune it out. Now it's playing itself out and it's playing itself out. So the second Intifada began with some Palestinian activism within Israel, uh, but it was one that was confronted by the Israeli police. Now we've got essentially the two populations at loggerheads of a way that you really haven't seen since the British mandate. So I think it's a moment, it, you know, the ironic thing is of a couple of weeks ago, you had an Israeli political party that was in essence, Palestinian and Islamist becoming a normal political actor within Israel um, and being integrated as a normal political actor. And now what you see is a kind of visceral, uh, 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 politics divisions among two communities, um, which again is is it's not totally unprecedented, but it's the sort of thing that 
I think most Israelis, certainly most Israeli Jews, had thought was just a creature of, of the historical past. If there is a one-state reality, where does Gaza fit within it? We spoke with Tarek Bakoni of the International Crisis Group and the University of West Cape in South Africa. He's the author of the book, Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance, and recently the article, Gaza and the One-State Reality. Uh, Tarek, thank you for joining us. Tarek, in our last publication, uh, you talked about the Gaza exception, the way that uh, people seem to just not include Gaza in their discussions of occupation and of the one state reality that, that we were writing about. So tell us a little bit about how that plays out in the current context and uh, what we should be thinking about. Well, it's been very easy to think about the Gaza Strip as an exceptional case, as something that can be held apart from the rest of Palestine. Obviously, the Israeli narrative is one that puts forward this idea that the Gaza Strip is a terrorist enclave under Hamas's rule, and it needs to be contained and separated from the rest of the Palestinian territories. When in reality, if we're thinking uh, about the land of Israel-Palestine as a one-state reality, the Gaza Strip is actually and one part or one segment of, of that reality that's very similar to other Palestinian enclaves. It's a strip of Palestinian land that is inhabited by Palestinians that is surrounded by Israel or Israeli controlled territory. That reality is similar to other Palestinian enclaves in the West Bank. It's similar to East Jerusalem. It's similar to even Palestinian cities within Israel itself. The one state reality is a reality where uh, Israel has managed to consolidate territory and uh, isolate Palestinians in different territorial enclaves. And the Gaza Strip is just one extreme version of that kind of separation. Um, so when we think about the current constellation, it's very easy to think about the Gaza-Israel uh, escalation as the Israelis um, often talk about, or the international media often talks about, as, it, as something that's separate from what's happening elsewhere. Uh, and, and I think it's really important for us to understand that it's actually part and parcel of the same uh, reality. Uh, Palestinians mobilizing in Jerusalem throughout 48 uh, in the West Bank and Palestinians in Gaza, as well as the diaspora are all fighting the same regime. And it's uh, the tactics of uh, resistance might uh, differ, but we really need to understand the Gaza Strip as part and parcel of that. Let's talk a little bit more about the connections between Gaza and the rest of the Palestinian body politic. Um, obviously separated uh, by virtue of the Palestinian Authority versus Hamas rule, but what are the other things that people should look at beyond those um, political differences? I mean, I think the political differences are, are important, but that's only part of the story. I think the Gaza Strip, before uh, the division, the political division between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority has been a part of the Palestinian territories that's been isolated. Uh, and the reason for that is not uh, uh, for any political reason in terms of, of Hamas coming to power, but rather due to the political reason of, of it being a heavily populated Palestinian enclave uh, that has a majority of Palestinian refugees. So it's historically always been important for Israel to isolate the Gaza Strip and to manage 
the Gaza Strip, to try to pacify it in other ways and to ensure that it does not present a security issue or a security risk to uh, for Gaza. So that, those kinds of Israeli policies towards the Gaza Strip have created ruptures in the Palestinian social and economic uh, reality. So obviously the political realities and obviously the, the division between Hamas and the PA is a symptom of that. And that is a, a Palestinian sort of internalization of that kind of fragmentation that's imposed on them by the Palestinian, by the, by the Israeli uh, uh, government. But there's also uh, restrictions on freedom of movement. You know, the, uh, the Palestinians in Gaza can uh, cannot move to the West Bank or to Jerusalem, where, where Palestinians in the West Bank can go into Gaza. It's a one one way flow. Uh, and I think what that's created is a reality where Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians in the West Bank, even though they're fighting the same occupying force have very different realities, have very different perceptions of what it means to be Palestine and what uh, to be Palestinian. And what we're seeing today on the ground is a grassroots effort to move beyond that, to unify as a single Palestinian movement. Now, the people who, the Palestinians who live in Gaza, of course, have suffered extreme violence and also due to the siege, uh, extreme, you know, kind of isolation and suffering over the years. And, and that, that has to take a toll. Absolutely. I think that it's the, the reality of the blockade is one of collective punishment, where Palestinians are, are suffering not only due to the fact that they are imprisoned in that strip of land, but that their economy is being uh, systematically de-developed. Uh, and to add on to that, there are uh, obviously sporadic eruptions, military assaults, by the Israeli government on uh, the Gaza Strip that have devastating impact, uh, both on, on, the hum on human life, uh, but also on um, the infrastructure, on the psychology of the people who are living there. In some ways, I always think of the Gaza Strip as a piece of land that's suspended in time. It's sort of held in time and in space on the, on the corner of what is Israel-Palestine and is effectively uh, used uh, as, as a sort of, as a form or an example of what it means to resist and what it means to be Palestinian. And what that means is to incur the, the sort of the full wrath of the Israeli military force. Um, and that toll, I think, is one that will be felt for generations, regardless of whether the blockade is lifted or not, even if it's lifted tomorrow, the toll will be will be one that will be felt for a long time. So we've seen this uh, really quite remarkable then uh, mobilization that which began in Jerusalem and Sheikh Surah, um, but is spread across uh, into Palestinian citizens of Israel, into Gaza. Um, what can you say about the interactions between how Gazans are experiencing this versus the Palestinian citizens of Israel or uh, in the West Bank, Jerusalem? Is there anything distinctive about the Gazan experience of this? That's a really important question. I mean, in some ways, there, there are some divisions within the, the Palestinian community who are mobilizing in terms of what the tactics of resistance should look like. There are people who are advocating for peaceful protests, despite the Israeli use of force on peaceful protesters to maintain a kind of peaceful grassroots mobilization. Uh, the idea is that that's what would garner most support on the, on the international community and would be able to unify uh, the Palestinians. Strategically, Palestinians are not able to deal with Israel's military force. And so the idea is grassroots mobilization should be the way forward. Uh, Hamas, obviously, as a movement that is uh, in charge of the Gaza Strip or governing the Gaza Strip, I should say, believes in armed struggle. And it has learned its lesson, uh, certainly after the Great March of Return, that peaceful protests will not shift public opinion and Israel will use force indiscriminately against Palestinian protesters 
unarmed and, and, and uh, peaceful protesters. So there are different uh, considerations in terms of the tactics to be used. And I, I think Palestinians, because of their fragmented reality, are, are facing very different contexts in terms of their struggles. So I think understandably the tactics of resistance also look differently in different places. I think it's important for us to focus rather than focusing specifically on those differences to focus on the fact that regardless of the form of mobilization, they're all calling for the same thing. They're calling for the protection of Jerusalem from Israeli aggression. They're calling for ending Israeli control over all Palestinian lives, regardless of where they are, even if it takes different forms. And that's actually the unifying message that's coming through. Why did Hamas decide to get involved? And what are the political implications? We asked Imad al-Sus. He's the author of several recent articles about Hamas and is working on a forthcoming book. Imad, thank you for joining us. So you've published a lot of research on Hamas as an organization. Uh, could you tell us what you think drove Hamas to enter the conflict um, at this point? Um, as a student of Hamas, uh, in relation to this current exchange of violence between Gaza and Israel, I think the most important uh, point that Hamas took in, into consideration is the public response. Hamas, an organization since its inception, always very sensitive and responsive to the popular stand of the Palestinian on the actions of the movement. And uh, for example, in the last war in 2014, Hamas was partially blamed by the Palestinian for initiating the war uh, or to exchange fire with Israel. But this time, Hamas interfered uh, to protect the Palestinians when the public opinion was, was um, uh, discontent, disillusioned by the Israeli actions, by silencing, for example, the uh, Palestinian moderate, what they called moderate in, in the West Bank, and then the block of the, of the two-state solution. And at the same time, Israel continued in, uh, in Sheikh Jarrah and this uh, neighborhood in Jerusalem, to practice its historical uh, settler colonialism by forcing people out of their homes and replacing them by Jewish, for example, settlers from New York. And uh, apart from also the intrusion inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque, like Israel didn't do this outside the walls or the compound of the mosque, but entered inside. So Hamas, the people in Jerusalem, they were calling Hamas to, uh, to intervene and to, to react against this. And in this regard, this popular dissatisfaction, uh, Israel, uh, Hamas interfered and launched rockets into Western Jerusalem. And in this regard, Hamas is telling the people, I am not the one who initiated the war. I just reacted for public response and to protecting our uh, Islamic and the Christian uh, shrines. And in this regard, Hamas is warning the internal front of the Palestinians. And to me, this is the first time happened in the history of Hamas since its inception in 87, that all the Palestinians inside, inside British Mandate Palestine, which means that they are inside the green, the green Line, which is Israel, and the West Bank and Jerusalem, apart from Gaza. And this is why Hamas, I think, is winning the hearts of the people in this regard. Now, obviously, Hamas knew that uh, that once it launched these missiles, that Israel would respond with force. How do you think that they uh, deal with the, the implications of this massive humanitarian and civilian suffering, which is resulting? Um, I think uh, um, Hamas, I don't know if they expected this or not, but Israel started this war 
by attacking civilian buildings. And this was exactly the end of the last war, the 52 uh, wars, uh, days war in, in 2014, when Israel in the last five days of the war started to attack these uh, uh, towers, civilian towers, where like every tower about 65 or 70 families living. And this increased the pressure on Hamas to accept the ceasefire in 2014. This time, Israel, it seems that they wanted the war to be very short. So they started with attacking these civilian towers where family live and become homeless and they pressure Hamas. But unfortunately, this Israeli narrative is not winning this time because Hamas in front of the Gazans, they are not responsible. So far, I listen to the Gazans, I make conversation, I talk with them all the time and they are not supporter of Hamas. They don't blame Hamas for this, but they blame Israel. And I think this is to defend Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is their narrative, not, not my narrative. Right. And in this regard, I think Hamas position is not weakened by attacking civilians in Gaza by Israel or attacking civilian buildings. What do you, what do you say about the uh, comments by at least some of the protesters in Shikra and elsewhere uh, that they didn't welcome this turning into a military confrontation, that they would have preferred that the focus remain on the, the, the protests? Um, I'm not familiar, Mark, with these voices. Maybe they exist, but I'm not familiar with this. But as a, as a student of Hamas who follow every... Uh, every action in Palestine or every protest, I was hearing all the time from protesters in, in Sheikh Jarrah and in Al-Aqsa Mosque compound calling for Hamas to intervene. Maybe there are some voices, they support the popular resistance, which is, which is very good. But also there are many voices now inside Palestine. I, I should say, again, this is not my position. This is what I see from the people. They want to compound military resistance with popular resistance, depend on the context, depend where the action should be taken. I think this is now the popular stand on the two forms of resistance in, uh, in Palestine as a whole. Now, based on your long observation of Hamas's strategy, um, presumably, I think you expect them to be pragmatic in their in their response. What does that mean in this context? As when once the war uh, kind of winds down, where do you expect things to go? Um, I think uh, there are two points that I understood from, uh, from Hamas, head of political bureau, who is uh, officially the, uh, the head of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, and also the official speaker of its military brigade, Qassam Brigades. Uh, from, from the political bureau, I heard from Haniyeh that, in fact, if I want to summarize his long uh, speech, that they didn't initiate this war by themselves, but they were invited to react for Jerusalem. This is, the first, this is the first pragmatic part in his speech. The pragmatic part from the military uh, 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 spokesperson of, uh, of Hamas, he always repeated the same word in every speech he said, if you continue, we will continue. He's, he's meaning Israel. That means Hamas want to stop the war, but they want Israel to stop the war first, and then they stop. And I think Israel is doing the same from the other side. Who is going to win that the other side is to the war? And, and here it's more the pragmatic part, I think not only from Hamas and also from Israel. Both of them, they want to stop the war, but they want to win that the other side won the war. Because now the, the, the game is on the popular response and the popular unity among Palestinians uh, or among the Israelis inside Israel. I think this is where is the game now regarding uh, the pragmatisms of Hamas and, the, and Israel. 
Now, shortly before this uh, particular crisis broke out, uh, you saw the cancellation of the Palestinian elections. Um, do you think that that had any role in how Hamas is thinking about its current political position? Uh, I think everything uh, can have a role because if we talk about from Hamas side and Gaza's side where Hamas is ruling, the Gazans had a great hope with these elections. They think that it will be an exit for their uh, suffering. And, but when President Abbas said Israel rejected to, that the election take place in East Jerusalem, uh, then, then the Palestinians inside Gaza were disillusioned by, uh, by Abbas. Yes, he has some fo many followers because he's the one who paid their, uh, their salaries, but these people also complaining about uh, not taking, uh, not holding the, uh, the elections. And all of this came in the side of Hamas. And this also Hama helped Hamas to get more popular uh, support during this uh, exchange of fire with Israel. How are things developing on the ground in Gaza? To find out, we talked to Abdul Hadi Al-Ijla of the Orient Institute in Beirut, who's been researching Gaza for decades. Abdul Hadi, thank you for joining us. So Abdul Hadi, you're, you're from Gaza. You've been doing research in and on Gaza for many years. Can you tell us a little bit about the situation there now and, um, and, and kind of how things are being experienced on the ground? Well, uh, thank you. Um, well, one thing is I'm um, being from Gazstrip and doing um, research on Gazstrip and having my all, all my family in the Gazstrip. I think um, the, the situation there has uh, two faults. One, the uh, psychological burdens on us as researchers from the Gazstrip, as somebody, as a human being from the Gazstrip, but also as someone who is following the uh, developments in the Gazstrip for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, the current situation is we can we, we, we can say it's not a war as been um, uh, framed in some of the Western medias, uh, especially in Europe and the United States, uh, but it's an aggression and attacks um, against human beings, against infrastructure, against uh, uh, any um, things that could uh, uh, contribute to the um, uh, basic uh, life's needs in the gas trip. For example, the, for the last five days, they have been targeting a newly built roads after 2014 roads, like Al, 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 Al uh, Rashid Road in, in, in the coast. Um, they have been targeting universities. They have been targeting um, uh, research centers. They have been targeting um, uh, houses, civilian houses and, and, and health uh, uh, services and the clinics. So the situation there, it looks black. It's, it's, it seems that the Israeli regime and the Israeli government um, 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 have a mentality of bringing Gaza back to the Iron Age as they have threatened back uh, for the last few years. Um, and and, and it means a lot. It's not targeting military um, points or the Hamas, as they say, or Islamic Jihad, but they target the Palestinians and, and uh, mostly civilians. When you say that 30% of the uh, victims are children, 20% of the victims are women, then what's left? And of course, elderly people. Ah. How, do, how does this uh, round of, uh, of violence compare to the 2014 uh, attacks? Um, th let's start with the what, what the Israeli generals uh, said a few years ago, that the next Gaza war will start from 2014 end. And they did exactly the same when, when, when they, in Gaza 2014 war, they uh, ended with the uh, uh, attacking towers, high uh, buildings. 
And now they started from that point um, until today, more than 30,000 uh, uh, houses were uh, partially or completely destroyed. Uh, more than 10 um, uh, high towers and buildings were destroyed. Um, they attacked the media centers uh, like Reuters and, and houses of, of, of uh, 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 let's say the Palestina de facto government officials, uh, but, but also other civilian um, houses. So um, the, 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 the 2014 wars was devastating, but now 2021 uh, um, attacks is uh, beyond that. Um, they are targeting every single point in the Gaza Strip. The use of new weapons, the use of, uh, of, of artillery, of, um, of, of, of the air force, brutal air force, uh, attacking um, in, in, in just one hour, uh, dropping more than uh, 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 100,000 kilo of, of, of bombs. That's, that's unbelievable. That's just something um, have never happened, I, I think, uh, so far in the history of a human mankind. And then in terms of the, uh, the, the targeting, um, and in terms of your like long experience researching the West Bank, uh, I'm sorry, researching Gaza, how do you differentiate between the Hamas presence and the civilian presence and uh, in terms of the, the, the way the targeting is being done? Well, um, uh, if you know the Gaza Strip, the Gaza Strip is one of the most dense and populated areas in the world. And Israel have created a no man go, no, uh, man go zone uh, in, the, in the last few years. So it's a dense area um, and, 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 and Hamas doesn't have a military doesn't have military bases in, in the modern and structural way. And, and that's why when, when, when Hamas fighters or Qassam fighters or Islamic Jihad fighters, they are civilians by, by, by definition. They are members of freedom fighter. They are part of, 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 of um, a, a, a resistance movement. And, and, and that's why um, they, they, they don't have the advantage of an Israeli, uh, uh, the Israeli army to have an, a base and to, to, to be targeted. So they live, sleep, uh, uh, walk, eat, and also um, uh, uh, run their activities from uh, areas where they can be protected because there is no place that they can um, uh, uh, run their activities outside civilian areas. And that's exactly what Israel tries to, um, to, 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 to send to the world that they use uh, human shields, which is not basically true because Israel is the one who uses human shields. When, 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 uh, when they attack civilians in, uh, and, and civilian houses and civilian institutions, it's exactly they want to tell the world that Hamas uh, uses uh, civilian uh, houses uh, to protect themselves, which is not, not, not right because Hamas members are civilians. Uh, unless they, um, uh, uh, they, 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 they are uh, in, in, in a military base, but there is no military base. Hamas is a mo resistance movement. Hamas is a, 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 a non-governmental uh, organization. Hamas is uh, uh, just uh, like any other resistance movement. And, and that's, um, there is no, they don't, Israel don't different, doesn't differentiate between civilians and Hamas. They consider everyone in Gaza is part of Hamas. And that's the rhetoric that's uh, uh, Israeli media, Israeli army, uh, and, and Israeli government officials, officially and non-officially. If, if you look at the, the Twitter handles of the Israeli prime minister, of Israeli in different languages, 
um, of, of the Israeli institutions, they perceive Gaza. They don't say Hamas, they say Gaza. One last question then is uh, very specifically, uh, you've been involved with work on, uh, on, on, uh, on academia and uh, the educational sector and research sector in Gaza. Can you say a little bit about um, its conditions right now and how this war is affecting um, uh, that sector? Uh, just today, um, uh, this morning, Hama, uh, Israel attacked and bombarded a Kohel uh, building in, in West Gaza. Kohel building is one of the, of the buildings that host more than 22 educational center in the Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. And this building also hosts uh, three main bookshops and one and, and the main uh, uh, service point of copying and publishing for academic institutions, for the, the biggest three universities in the Gaza Strip. So it's today Israel committed a new crime against academia. Uh, Israel committed the new crimes against education in the Gaza Strip. And, 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 and the situation looks very bad because for, for one, um, uh, aspect, more than 20% of the people killed are students at universities. That's one. Uh, three uh, academics were killed just in a few days. And one of them is a professor at the Islamic University of Gaza. Two of them are doctors and, and, and lecturers um, in, 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 in at the Gaza universities. And plus now we don't have any more uh, uh, copying or advanced uh, copying services and 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 publishing houses. Samir Mansour uh, um, uh, uh, copying uh, and and publishing house. Uh, we don't have a Lubad uh, bookshop and others. We lost everything basically in in in, in the Gaza Strip. And 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 that's why one of the of, of the situation that after this um, uh, uh, round of of of, of 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 aggression against the Gaza Strip. We, we as academics have a big responsibility to support the academics in Gaza Strip, support their engagement and rebuilding of, of these uh, institutions, as well as engaging them into the conversation about the Gaza and Palestine and the future of Palestine. Where's the Palestinian Authority? in the midst of all of this. We're joined by Diana Greenwald of the City College of New York, who's completing a book on the subject. Diana, thanks for joining us. So Diana, you've been doing research on uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, its forms of rule and governance. Tell us a little bit about how you understand the role of the PA in the West Bank in, in the context of this current crisis. Yeah, thanks. So. Um... As you know, you've mentioned, most of my work to date has been focused in the West Bank, and part of that is a result of you know Palestinian uh, displacement and diasporization. Uh, many of us Palestine scholars and people working uh, and doing research in Palestinian communities end up in kind of one territory or another. Um, so my work on the Palestinian Authority sort of situates them both the origins of the PA and its kind of effects on the ground as part of a regime of what I call indirect rule that kind of resulted from Israel's goals pretty much from the day after the 1967 war when it gained control of the occupied territories, um, leading into the negotiations that created the Oslo Accords. Those goals were, you know, they didn't specifically determine every um, geographic and territorial complexity of what we saw in the Oslo Accords, but they set some 
kind of rough parameters for the extent of autonomy that Palestinians would have in governing their day-to-day -day affairs and also the geographic kind of restrictions on Palestinian autonomy. Um, one of the most consequential restrictions on Palestinian autonomy in the West Bank has been their inability to develop any kind of what you know would be referred to as coercive capacity or kind of externally facing um, institutions of self-defense or something like a traditional military. So that was always a red line that um, Israel was unwilling to concede. So what we end up seeing with the Palestinian Authority since um, the Oslo Accords created the PA in the 1990s all the way up through the present day is basically um, a very inward facing form of autonomy that governs um, isolated Palestinian cities and towns and performs some of the kind of basic day-to-day -day tasks of, you know, um, collecting the trash and providing water and electricity and uh, ensuring the provision of day-to-day -day services within those towns, um, but also policing, uh, you know, sort of the, the interior of Palestinian communities within uh, the West Bank, while having absolutely no kind of outward facing coercive capacity and absolutely no control over the defense of kind of Palestinian communities from quote unquote external threats. And so a lot of my work looks at kind of how those institutions um, resulted in, you know, what we see in um, Palestinian municipalities and towns in terms of um, taxing, spending, and just how the political parties and organizations on the ground kind of manage this reality. So when you begin to see a moment of potentially widespread Palestinian mobilization, and we're seeing it spanning you know, Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, into Israel itself, um, what, how does the PA respond to or deal with that kind of potential mass mobilization? Yeah, so that's a really important question. Um, and if we think of the Palestinian Authority as essentially set of institutions that has been delegated some form of uh, control or authority by Israel and by um, the kind of occupation regime, then they are, uh, we would see them as kind of agents of Israel's needs and, and perhaps also the needs of the one party that controls the PA Fatah, the kind of uh, governing uh, autocratic party. And they would be, you know, seeking to kind of repress any threats to that existing status quo regime. And indeed, we have seen some incidents of PA arrests in the wake of these recent protests and some repression of the protest activity in the West Bank. I think that what will be critical to look at moving forward is um, the, the kind of actions and choices and behavior of the kind of rank and file Palestinian authority um, security officers, police, um, uh, employees, et cetera, on the ground in the West Bank to see whether they um, essentially choose to continue fulfilling that role or whether they choose to uh, defect in some way and join, uh, join the movement or tacitly permit uh, these protests to continue. And we've seen you know, some history of that. For example, during the Second Intifada, we saw examples of Palestinian police uh, joining with uh, you know, the demonstrations and, and joining with uh, the, the uprising. So I think that that's kind of a critical question for looking ahead at what this movement means in the West Bank. 
Is there any real possibility for the Palestinian Authority to behave independently in, in this context you described as this delegated, um, you know, this delegation of responsibility where essentially their job is to keep control of the West Bank and in, in relation to Israel? So is there any way of seeing this as a, as a possibility for developing a more independent stance? Or is it just so fundamentally shaped by that history that it's trapped? Well, I think that's a, that's a key question. And I think a lot of that, um, the answer to that has to do with what we see the role of kind of individual agency and just sort of individual choices, you know, at the local level. Um, a lot of my research that I've been doing for my ongoing book project that's looking at local governance in the West Bank. I spoke to many Palestinian politicians, you know, at the municipal level about their relationships with the police and the Palestinian Authority police on the ground. And sometimes those were what you'd expect, you know, if there were politicians that um, represented opposition groups such as Hamas or independent groups or smaller parties, they had antagonistic relationships with the PA police. But in other cases, there were actually instances of local level um, sort of understanding, mutual understanding and mutual cooperation on a kind of case by case basis, despite these very vast political differences between kind of uh, Palestinians who identify themselves as part of the kind of resistance to the status quo versus those who are seen as really upholding the status quo and working on behalf of the occupation. Um, those relationships can be very complex. And I think, uh, you know, the uh, ability of the PA, uh, you know, in aggregate as an institution to kind of suddenly transform into some other um, kind of set of institutions that represents Palestinian uh, national resistance, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think to, to look ahead, we have to think about um, whether we're talking, you know, about the, the one state reality and the various uh, forms of sovereignty and statehood that might ultimately, you know, result out of the, the current, you know, crisis and situation. We don't really know what, you know, Palestinian authority institutions, what their future is going to be. They could be absorbed into that state. They could be completely dismantled. Um, what is to become of the kind of uh, individual rank and file people that worked within these institutions. Um, and I think those processes and those moments of transition are something that, um, you know, that I'm certainly interested in and, and, and we should all be keeping an eye on. Gail Berda is at Harvard Kennedy School's Middle East Initiative. She's the author of Living Emergency, Israel's Permit Regime in the Occupied West Bank. Uh, Yael, thanks for joining us. Tell us about uh, how you see the current events in terms of your historical research. Hi. Um, so one of the things that I think that it's important to understand is the differentiation between different kinds of Palestinians. Um, and that differentiation, we can start with Jerusalem. So Jerusalemites are residents of the occupied West Bank, um, which is East Jerusalem. But they, and they have um, residency permits, but they don't have political rights. So they're not citizens. Now, Palestinians that live in the West Bank um, don't have residency rights and don't have political rights, but they have some sort of possibility for, mobil for mobility within the West Bank and between the West Bank and, um, and Israel. And, um, and then, people in Palestinians in Gaza are under siege. 
they have no mobility, no rights, and, um, and no, no residency status. So we see this differentiation and we might say, well, wait a minute, what is this about? Now, we often think of regimes of mobility as a security measure. This is a security measure, right? You know, you, you, you put checkpoints and you, and you um, have lists of people that can enter and not enter based on different levels of risk and suspicion. And it all makes sense in that kind of context. But when you start looking at it from the point of view of the differentiation, not only between mo of mobility, but also of rights, you start to see that there's a logic to it. And the logic is about differentiating between different kinds of um, different kinds of populations based on a hierarchy of mobility, of rights, and also possibilities to participate even, to even be included in the political conversation. And you'll see this as, as, you, as you listen to who, who is being included. Oh, so there's Palestinian citizens of Israel and we do need to think about them. Um, but when you talk about the residents of Jerusalem, there's an unclarity. There, even Israelis, most Israelis don't even know that, um, that Jerusalemites are only residents. And what that means is that that logic of separation and the logic of segregation is something that has an impact on what kind of means can be used legally, what kind of violence can be used. And then you also see these different levels of measures and of, um, I don't even know what word to use, expendability or surplusness right. of population based on, on this hierarchy um, of rights and, and mobility. And it's, this is a structure that was created, this kind of differentiation, this logic is not an invention. It was created um, during the colonial period as legal spatial measures of emergency were put to kind of govern different populations according to different types of law. And so the protests that begin in Sheikh Jarrah in, uh, in Jerusalem, uh, then you know, they spread quite rapidly across uh, the West Bank, but also into uh, Israel itself. And so how does this understanding of these differential uh, mobilities and, and citizenship rights, how does that intersect with uh, our observation of this rapid spread of protests across the Green Line? I think what we're seeing um, is that the kind of separation and segregation based on mobility and rights is not effective right now. That you're seeing protest that is spreading wide because people are moving beyond that type of separation and understanding themselves as part of a, of a, of a Palestinian collective that is kind of not differentiated by this logic of mobility. Now this, you do see there's, there's very important effects that also have to do with class. They have to do with, uh, you know, with, with religion. So, so Christians are gonna, you know, be different than Muslims and, and, um, and different classes will respond differently to what's happening right now and that you're also gonna see in the protest. But what seems to, to have happened is that it's no longer the question of Jerusalem or problems in the West Bank and, Gaza being, you know, under siege and out of the purview, there's this connection now that is a collective, um, a collective um, uh, effort, and that is a total change than than the way the conflict has been managed, if we're going to use that word. 
so the, the idea to manage the conflict through differentiation and this hierarchy of mobility of rights, it seems to have collapsed. But the, so, but the physical structures of uh, mobility control and the, the forms of policing haven't yet changed in, oh, in, in response. No, no, but that's the thing. I mean, we, we, what we see is a politics of resistance to that, but of course the structures are still there. And for instance, um, uh, one possibility would be um, a demand to, to, um, to abolish the permit regime to say, you know, this is something that we don't accept anymore. And what, because that, that in itself has not been um, on the table. You know, it hasn't been like on the agenda uh, to actually demand um, um, that the, the mobility regime be abolished or that equality be considered across, um, across the equality of rights be considered across the different types of Palestinians. It, it opens it it opens this 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 moment, which is very difficult and incredibly violent. Um, opens possibilities for thinking beyond differentiation along the green line, along these different groupings of of uh, Palestinians and their ordering, and thinking a little bit more widely about um, the entire territory and about all the population within that territory. Um, what, it, what is being called the one state reality is very much visible in mm -hmm. this conflict. And, and I think that that's, that's gonna have a lot of effect on the way these, you know, people are gonna view this kind of differentiation of citizenship and mobility restrictions. It moves in the other direction too, right? Where forms of policing and control uh, prevalent in the West Bank or Jerusalem can move into Israel proper as well. Oh, absolutely. So one of the things that that um, that one of the real possibilities, and it still is a possibility, is that the military government that that was um, that was part of the Israeli state um, between 1949 and 1966, that that would be reinstated in areas um, that are primarily um, with of Palestinian Palestinians who hold the Israeli citizenship. So, I mean, one of the things about the coronavirus is that we've already seen how through emergency laws, systems of surveillance on Palestinians of the West Bank have been imported to, to monitor Israeli citizens. So this is not, um, so this is not gonna be anything new. Th that importation is going to, to make sense right now. So yes, there's absolutely, there's, there's a possibility for a different kind of politics to take place. And there's also the possibility for, um, for the forms of, of governing by emergency that takes place in the West Bank to take place within Israel. What are the prospects for international law and the International Criminal Court? We turned to Nora Erkat of Rutgers University, author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Uh, Nora, thank you for joining us. So Nora, you've written a lot over the years about uh, international law and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the limits of legal approaches. Could you say a little bit about uh, how you think about this now in the context of the current crisis? 
I think that there is an assumption amongst peoples that international law has some normative meaning. It's lofty that when people say um, we want international law to prevail, they are saying something positive, that somehow this means that there will be a universal good. What's lost in that is a critical examination of the constitution of the law and the way that it's implemented. So it's constituted of um, imperial interests, one that has been born of an encounter between um, Spanish conquistadores or colonizers and indigenous peoples and a triangulated relationship with also colonial transatlantic slave trade. And so that becomes embedded within the law. Since its inception, that's never been rewritten or overcome, but instead been reshaped as pe formerly colonized peoples have been able to reshape the law itself. That said, it doesn't change the way that the law can be applied in reflection of material realities, the uh, balance of power, historical interests, military power, economic power. And so what we've seen in particular regard to the question of Palestine and the Palestinian struggle for freedom is that over the course of the hundred years um, since the uh, Balfour Declaration was in, issued in 1917, that Israel has actually used international law to advance its interests um, far more successfully than Palestinians have been able to use the law in order to resist that or to achieve their freedom. There have been certainly, there have been exceptions as we've seen during the 1970s when Palestinians rise up with a global third world revolt in order to change the meaning of the law. But on the whole, Israel has used uh, the law, for example, the language of occupation law in order to legitimate its ongoing presence within the Palestinian uh, territories has used the, the fallacy of temporality and military necessity to remove Palestinians and to implant Jewish Zionists in their place under the veneer of international law, not despite it, but because of it. Similarly, we see as we see Israel bombard a besieged Gaza Strip Yet again, the the and, and people can turn around and say, but how is Israel getting away with it and have conspiracy theories? Not really. They've also written into the laws of war and made suggestions for its transformations to not only make exceptions for its brutal and excessive and frankly genocidal force, but have um, proposed that these become new laws of war that can be applied by others elsewhere. And so at this particular juncture, people can also ask, well, how can Palestinians use the law? Frankly, and, and I make this argument and I'm gonna say it again, the law is a tool. The law can only be as helpful as the political movement uh, that is wielding it is. So in order for it to be leveraged for an emancipatory purpose towards a freedom struggle, it has to be used in a sophisticated service of a political movement. And right now for the first time in a long time because of the crisis and absence of capable Palestinian leadership, but we've seen uh, a different leadership that's arisen, an organic leadership, one that has been um, doing this work on the ground. Now we see an opportunity where we may very well be able to use the law in the sophisticated service of this moment. So approaching it orthogonally instead of working within the established terms, what 
hope, if any, does the new role of the ICC play in any of this? Do you see any prospect for the uh, the intervention of the International Criminal Court to uh, be able to transform some of these power relations? It's not within the International Criminal Court's hands to transform those power relations. We've seen the ICC slowly drag its feet and try to, you know, do a win-win situation without actually advancing the cause itself. So consider, for example, that the ICC has been stuck between a rock and a hard place that since, since its establishment in 2002, that it has only been able to successfully bring cases against African um, leaders or African perpetrators, as well as Slobodan Milosevic, but never against a former colonial power, uh, an actual uh, Western power. And so this has caused, for example, the organization, uh, excuse me, the African Union to suggest that African states withdraw from the Rome Statute in signaling the crisis of the ICC's legitimacy. On the other hand, you have the ICC actually attempting to hold the United States to account for its atrocities in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you have um, the ICC trying to hold Israel to account for its atrocities in Palestine. And the pushback has been to sanction the ICC, limit their movement, threaten their funding, dismantling it altogether. So the ICC has been within this place where it has mm -hmm. certainly served the interests of the powerful and is now threatened by the powerful should it try to serve the interests of the weak. Um, and so in here, how I think it played out in regards to the Palestinian bid is that it signaled that yes, it does have jurisdiction to hear the case, but now we'll see what that looks like in terms of its investigation, um, which it can drag its feet about indefinitely. Um, looking at the, the actual charges within the that the ICC is contemplating, uh, none of them are for structural violence. They're all for limited incidences. And this is another thing about the law. The law does not have the capacity to try structures, to recount for history. They isolate incidents, examine them um, on a, on a very, in a very granular way in order to answer a very particular question. At most, it will be able to hold um, individuals to account. And before they can hold, I think, Israeli individuals to account, they are going to most certainly be prosecuting Palestinians um, and Hamas leaders. Uh, which for the ICC presents a more clear-cut case than what Israel is going to advocate um, on, its, on, on its end is the fog of war. So one last question is then, is the Human Rights Watch report, uh, which tried to make the case for applying a legal definition of apartheid to the Israeli-Palestinian context, does that seem to you a more promising approach or is that also a dead end? Let me just say that the Human Rights Watch report is the culmination of decades of Palestinian scholarship and of Palestinian advocacy and Palestinian analysis that has said that this is not this is not merely an occupation, but this is a condition that affects Palestinians across all their geographies, irrespective of legal and political demarcations that have tried to fragment the Palestinian nation and to isolate this into a question of national security in Gaza, a question of citizenship and equality within Israel, and a question of 
um, occupation in the West Bank. And then forget the diaspora, that becomes off limits because the idea of Palestinian refugee rights has become weaponized as posing an existential threat to Israel. So what the Human Rights Watch report has basically done is, is understood that Israel has taken this to its limits, that there has been no accountability, that the kind of uh, soft uh, uh, stepping around this issue has basically signaled a green light to the Israeli right which has ascended into the center of government. The Israeli left has been decimated. And the Israeli left not only is decimated, but is also meek in this moment because of the punishment that the state promises to them. Notice that Israeli scholars aren't going to sign on to BDS, which is the least that they can do because of the punishment that's promised them. And so, no, I do not think it's a dead end. I recently wrote an article with a fellow legal scholar named John Reynolds. We published it in the Twail Review, where we argue that actually charging the crime of apartheid would be a very useful and strategic intervention on the part of the Palestinian legal advocacy community, because it not only places the entire structure under um, you know, some scrutiny, but it will also be an indictment of international criminal law for its inability to be able to read what has been you know, legislated as a crime against humanity since 1973. Now to discuss the way the Palestinian diaspora has responded to this crisis, we talked to Nadia Haj of Wellesley College. Uh, Nadia is the author of Protection Amid Chaos, the creation of property rights in Palestinian refugee camps, and of a forthcoming book called Networked Refugees, Palestinian Reciprocity and Remittances in the Digital Age. Uh, Nadia, thanks for joining us. So Nadia, you've been studying uh, the Palestinian diaspora and its connections back to uh, things that are happening inside of Palestine. So what, what do you see in terms of how these communities are engaging with what's been happening? Yeah, thanks, Mark. That's a fantastic question. I think that for the longest time, the way in which the discipline of political science and even popular media and even the way the United States government considers how Palestinians relate to one another is through the vehicle or the lens of elite political parties, primarily centering the narratives and the rhetoric of Fatah and Hamas. And of course, while these parties play a critical role in the Palestinian, the mobilization of some Palestinians, I think for the vast majority of Palestinians living in the diaspora, that is, outside the West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem, outside of the occupied territories. Palestinians living in the camps in the Mokhayim in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and let's consider countries of third settlement in the United States, across Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, the rest of the world, Latin America. Um, most of uh, these Palestinians relate to one another transnationally through their village and family, their hamulli and ahel. And it might come as a surprise, I'm not sure to people that don't study this, that Palestinians <clears throat> pre-1948 villages that have not physically speaking existed since before 1948, or since 1948 rather, um, are socially speaking very much alive. In the refugee camps, lots of research has shown how Pre-1948, Palestinian villages are, you know, mapped geographically onto refugee camps, but 
In this case, most importantly, they're mapped onto digital spaces. So digital networks of Palestinians mirror Palestinian villages and family groupings. That is every pre-1948 village, almost everyone has its own, for example, Facebook page. And on these Facebook pages, the community um, globally interacts with one another, with people still in the refugee camps, with people that have migrated outside of it, and they share information about local issues, politics, and the, what's unfolding, but also sometimes more basic things, you know, like um, expressing a need or desire for certain goods and services that aren't being provided by aid agencies or by host states. And so in this context, what's unfolding right now, for example, in Sheikh Jarrah, in the month leading up to what is now a very violent um, conflict in Gaza, what began in Sheikh Jarrah as these peaceful protests and sit-ins were actually organized explicitly not by Fatah and Hamas. They were not part of the organization and mobilization of the protests. Those were occurring at the neighborhood, family, and village level. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of talk of how of Palestinian unity. And I think that Palestinian unity has long been there. It's just when we were only looking for it at a political party level, we saw fracture factions and, and kind of divergence. But when you look at it at the level of family and village, you see how the community has long been caring for one another and reciprocal actions in these digital spaces. And that is, I think, what's unfolding right now as well and supporting one another. So what kinds of responses then are you seeing among these uh, these networked uh, diasporas, uh, for, whether it's in the camps or in kind of Western countries and the like? How are they engaging with what's happening in places like Sheikh Jarrah? So I think specifically they are um, amplifying the voice of their family and village networks that are still in Gaza, West Bank and Sheikh Jarrah, for example. And I think this is really important. They are expressing support and solidarity through political protests and movement within the United States. But the kind of impetus for this is that they have this deep connection based on the village, the family. And that connection inspires them to push for Palestinian justice, Palestinian lives matter, Palestinian solidarity, for example, in the American context um, by going out and protesting. So this past weekend, May 15th, when I looked at my village's Facebook page, Samurai Village, um, we are kind of scattered all over the United States, all over Europe and Australia and, um, and, and New Zealand. And what we saw unfold was um, simultaneous peaceful protests in Houston, in Chicago, um, in Atlanta, um, in Germany, and that, um, I think what's powerful about this is it's not being done through some political rhetoric that is, you know, being led by the top, by elite players that are probably the ones American negotiators are looking to talk to. This is being generated from below or horizontally even among villages and families. Now, is there also a material component to this? Uh, you talk about the spread of ideas and of, of kind of... Mm -hmm these personal connections, but what about like, you know, raising money or finding other ways to support uh, things that are happening on the ground inside occupied Palestine? 
100%. The, these family village Facebook pages, in essence, act as kind of digital mutual aid societies where the village and family um, and notions of appropriate behavior and norms of honor and shame that one should feel in regard to supporting their village, these tropes are being used, images of the village before 1948, images of village elders that are ill or elderly um, or whose homes have been destroyed. Those are what are being posted on these Facebook pages, reminding second, third, fourth generation Palestinians that may have never lived in the refugee camp or lived in Palestine, reminding them of their obligation to support their community. And so what this does is um, it foments and my research calls it, you know, reciprocal activism. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's this ideas component, but also materially through economic remittances. And the community crowdfunds the rebuilding of homes, of providing surgeries or kind of burn, uh, like recently a, a young child was burned um, quite severely in one of the bombings. The community will work to crowdfund for specialized skin grafts that certainly cannot be afforded by the family or are not available to them in other ways. Um, another recent example is um, food, accessing food. Now this isn't specifically in Gaza because it's very difficult to send food and goods into Gaza, but in other refu Palestinian refugee camps, for example, in Lebanon, where there's been high levels of hunger um, because of the economic crisis within that country, um, my family from Samurai Village expressed that they were going hungry. And so through a on this Facebook page, through the mutual aid kind of network of um, Samurai villagers living around the world, um, a distant cousin of mine uh, purchased a shipping container and through kind of a mobilization on Facebook, got don donations of food, items and stuffs that could manage a ship, you know, a shipping across the ocean. And he physically shipped and paid for himself through donations, food being sent to the camp. This, I think it's, you know, I think this is a strategic adaptation of the Palestinian community to the reality of occupation, to the reality of living in a protection gap where host states and aid agencies in some cases are either unwilling or lack the capacity to meet the demand that they're facing right now. One interesting dimension of this current conflict has been how it's played out on social media. There've been widespread accusations that social media organizations and companies are censoring Palestinian content. To find out more, we talked to Marwa Fatafta. She's the MENA policy manager at Access Now. Marwa, thanks for joining us. So Marwa, you've been uh, focused on uh, kind of social media and internet issues around the region for quite some time. Can you tell us what's unusual or what's new about what we're seeing in the Israeli-Palestinian context right now? The scale, the scale of the censorship and restriction and content takedown. I have been working on content moderation issues in the region, not only in Palestine, but across uh, the MENA region. And it's been always a, an issue and a grievance actually for activists and, and human rights defenders and users at large in the region 
that you know their content is being taken down in an arbitrary and, and um, disproportionate way. Um, human rights defenders in places like Syria, Yemen, Egypt, uh, often have their content which documents human rights violations taken down by the algorithms. So there is that grievance already existing um, from users in the region that tech companies, um, especially social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, just don't understand the context, don't understand the language, don't understand the politics of the region and are taking and developing policies that impact people's ability to speak up and speak freely and mobilize and organize politically and so on. So what's happening right now uh, pertaining to Palestine and Israel is to me is like a new dimension of censorship and repression. Um, my feeling from like cases that I have seen um, reported from users or by users um, on their content taken down on Instagram or the way they're being restricted. It's as if the entire infrastructure of the application is geared to suppress your content the moment you start speaking about Palestine, um, whether you are based there and you're documenting or you are based anywhere else in the world and you're just showing solidarity. To give you concrete examples, so you, of course you have the usual content takedown and a content suspension, and sometimes you're given a notice, sometimes you're not, that you're violating the terms of services or the so-called community standards, but users are receiving notifications that are restricting their ability to like a post or to comment on a post or um, to find users, um, to see their highlighted stories. Um, their live streaming is disrupted and blocked. They're locked out of their accounts. They're unable to upload content. They're unable to um, download content. So when you open your app, you find it extremely hard to um, have the content uh, related to Palestine showing. Uh, placing trigger, trigger warning to content that really isn't offensive. Um, that's the word um, Instagram, that's how Instagram marked the, that content when it really isn't offensive. It's it's just um, sometimes like text-based uh, content that like follow XYZ if you want to learn more about Palestine. Why is that being marked um, with a warning that this is offensive? So every line of service, if you may, or product um, on that particular platform has been used to somehow curb people's ability to um, share content uh, freely uh, as they did before. Not to mention shadow banning. Many users, particularly influencers and public figures, and that's something really interesting and, and in a way refreshing this time in the way people are speaking up about the issue. Um, the moment you start posting about Palestine, uh, users notice that their outreach is being slashed to the half, if not more. So technically they're being shadow banned. Um, and obviously they don't know what, what's going on. Um, but because of the volume of those cases and people speaking about them, um, users or people have the ability to say we are being shadow banned. You know, it's not just one particular person thinking, hmm, something is, you know, something is wrong with my 
with my account, but the moment, you know, it's again and again the same testimony. The moment I am speaking about, about Palestine or Gaza or Sheikh Jarrah, my outreach is being reduced and capped. So you said that, it, uh, that this is about algorithms, but uh, do, do we know that it is about algorithms and not intentional um, decisions by these platforms? Well, the platform said that these are technical errors um, or system mm -hmm. glitches. Here's the thing. There's no way for us to find out, right? Right. But regardless, if this was a system glitch, I think two weeks from when this has started, they could have had found the time to fix it and to ensure none of that has happened. But the stories continue of stories of takedowns and censorship and shadow ban, etc., are still emerging. So if it was about the algorithm running amok, I think by now they should have been able to fix it. Um, so which leads me to the conclusion that either they are willingly um, suppressing and so it's deliberate censorship or they have rubbish algorithm that is absolutely unable to moderate content and either way it's it's an utter failure really um have you seen and it's big... oh Sorry. go ahead um yeah i mean it speaks to their inability to moderate content at scale. So have you seen, or are you able to identify uh, any impact that this has had on the ability of activists uh, on the Palestinian issue to get their message out, to coordinate with each other, or to kind of act collectively? Yeah, indeed. I mean, people are disrupted and especially for people who are speaking up for the first time like influencers and makeup influencers and fashionistas and you know people who are non-political um, usually. And when you notice that your content is, sorry, your outreach is being affected and therefore all of your numerics and numbers, you were scared. And I think it would scare people into, um, into being silent and, and not speaking up for activists, you know, people in Sheikh Jarrah had said this before, and I think it's important to highlight here, social media, in a way, has saved their lives. Because without that international solidarity, without the campaign on social media, without being able to share their story uncensored and unwatered as it is, as crude as it is, with the rest of the world, they probably would have been evicted from their homes by now. And even the, so despite of the censorship, despite of the restrictions, whether it be intentional or not, um, the story has, you know, the, the, the cat is out of the bag, you know, the story has made it, there is a breakthrough. But obviously, one could imagine the outreach if none of the none of the censorship and restriction have taken place. 
So it's a bit like, and also interesting enough, like now activists in the region or users are trying to find creative ways to outsmart the algorithm, um, either through using, um, reviving actually this uh, old way of writing Arabic text or script without dots on the letters, um, which was used in the 11th century. Um, so in a way like to overcome or like right. try to defy the bias of the algorithm or trying to post non-related uh, content amidst Palestine content. Um, I mean, there's a lot of energy and creativity um, for people to kind of resist the bias and the discrimination of the algorithm. And it's, it's very... Um, it's very promising and also in a way and amusing to see. Gershon Shafir of the University of California, San Diego, is the author with Yoav Peled of Being Israeli, The Dynamics of Multiple Citizenship. Uh, more recently, he's the author of A Half Century of Occupation, Israel, Palestine, and the World's Most Intractable Conflict. Uh, Gershon, thank you for joining us. Gershon, how would you characterize the, the current conditions uh, between uh, Jewish and Palestinian citizens? Well, uh, as um, direct legal discrimination has declined in Israel, it was replaced by more indirect forms of legal discrimination, institutional discrimination, but also by Jewish vigilantism. This is not an altogether new phenomena. It started towards the end of uh, 2010 and has several uh, focal points and a distinct uh, geographical pattern. First, there's Lehava, which is an offshoot of Rabbi Kahana's Kach. Uh, the symbol is a yellow fist against a black background. There is Tag Mechir, uh, which carries out vigilante attacks uh, by uh, settlers, mostly in the Northern uh, West Bank against uh, neighboring Palestinian uh, towns and villages. There's even La Familia, who are soccer ultra similar to those you find in other countries. Now the former two have a distinct religious character and they invoke a theology of revenge to uh, justify the violent acts. They operate mostly uh, in Jerusalem, uh, Le Hava and La Familia, where in 2005, Israel erected a separation wall that uh, actually segregated about 100,000 Palestinians from, uh, from the West Bank uh, and joined them to Western Jerusalem. Actually, we know that there are uh, signs of uh, peaceful coexistence, uh, Arab employment, shopping patterns, the Hebrew University accepts Palestinian students, but uh, Jewish-Arab relations uh, also has a dark uh, side. Uh, the Lehava youth gather uh, on Thursday in Kikarzi on the main uh, square in Jerusalem. And actually, I, when I was there in January 2018, I saw the attempted lynching of a Palestinian um, teenager who miraculously uh, managed to escape. Uh, the police that were present precisely to prevent such attacks has not um, intervened. Is there anything new about what we're seeing over the last uh, few weeks? Uh, well, uh, the, um, uh, there are several, uh, though, though um, 
this vigilantism, I would say, is a backlash to a Palestinian social mobility. About half of the Palestinians live under the poverty line and close to half of the prison population also Palestinians, but there is also substantial social mobility. And it's a unique feature of this vigilantism in that it does not take place in factories or offices, but um, takes the form of struggle of uh, attacks uh, to protect Jewish uh, space, coming back to the issue of land, which characterizes this conflict. And there are also other religious justifications, an opposition to mixing, which might lead to romantic uh, relations and to uh, re and to Jewish uh, Arab marriage. Now, there are two things that are new. The first one is Arab citizens are also engaged in, in most probably not all cases, in acts of revenge or retaliation. But these are local and sporadic. Lehava, in contrast, and has a national network and it seems that for the first time they work together with Tag Mehir, the settler vigilante groups from the West Bank. The other new thing is that the Kahanists have returned to the Knesset, gaining renewed legitimacy. And this shows how much Israeli society has changed. In 1988, the Knesset passed an anti-racism law to prevent Kahana from running again but now Netanyahu went to great length to ensure that the um, um, few tens of thousands of votes that go uh, on, used to be wasted on uh, Kahana, uh, they joined to a religious um, Jewish uh, party. And uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who used to be the, um, the legal uh, uh, counsel of this, and is now a provocateur on a grand, grand scale, for example, moved in his office to Sheikh Jarrah, is now sitting in the Knesset. You've mostly been talking to this point about the Jerusalem area, but what about what's happening in the, the so-called mixed cities? Yes. Okay, let's first of all keep in mind that these mixed cities are less mixed than the term would indicate. There are separate Jewish and Arab neighborhoods. And this, but these are the cities that are the major sites of these vigilante attacks. There are two kinds of mixed cities. There are some that used to be Arab towns, Lod, Ramla, Acre, and others that after the 1948 war had a considerable part of the population expelled and new Jewish immigrants entered into them. Here, the relations between the two groups are um, most tense. There are also new mixed towns, Palestinians who are upwardly mobile also have to be geographically mobile because there isn't enough high standard housing for them. So many of them have moved into Jewish cities, uh, Upper Nazareth, Carmel, but also Batyam and Tel Aviv uh, further in the south. The, the one place where the worst, uh, worst um, vigilante attacks have taken place in Lod, starting with the killing 
of uh, Arab citizen it was in Lod or Lida, as it's known by its, um, its um, Arab name. It has a uniquely sordid history. We know from uh, Rabin's memoir uh, that um, during the 1948 war, in a staff meeting, uh, the commander alone asked Ben-Gurion what to do with the Palestinians who lived there who didn't answer him. Later on, when they left the tent, he asked the question again, Ben-Gurion waved his hand. We also know from Ari Shavib that a massacre took place in the city center. And finally, it has some diverse crime-ridden uh, neighborhoods in, in, in town. And the mayors in these cities, with the exception of Haifa, which is the, has become the cultural capital of Palestinian citizens, consider it to be their job to keep these Palestinians in place, even at the expense of Jewish um, inhabitants. Um, so they are preoccupied with the demographic ratio between the two groups, and they prefer to construct, for example, Haredi Jewish neighborhoods whose inhabitants don't contribute proportionally to the town sex base, but since they congregate around the rabbi who leads them, they are less likely to leave and sell their homes to uh, Palestinians. He, there are, there's one other feature, and that is the entry of Torah nuclear, Garinim Toranim, just composed of families of religious Jews, military bond yeshiva students, and sometimes religious women who substitute civic for military service. So this nuclei move into um, Jewish uh, into into Jewish and mixed towns. There exist dozens. They are funded by the government. The preference is to settle in mixed cities, where they act as settlers, basically bringing the dynamic of the occupied territories into Israel, having the occupation in that sense occupies Israel. The largest uh, nucleus, consisting of five hundred individuals, is in Lod, Lida. And there are others in Accra and Jaffa and other places. Their goal is to enforce Jewish sovereignty, strengthen the local religious identity and family structure of the poor Jewish families, but they cast a shadow over the lives of Palestinian residents. Consequently, mixed cities have become dormant volcanoes that are ready to erupt. How has this been received in the American Jewish community? We turn now to Michael Barnett of George Washington University. He's the author of the book, The Star and the Stripes, A History of the Foreign Policy of American Jews. So Michael, you've been studying uh, the, the positions of the US uh, Jewish community on Israel and Palestine for many years. Uh, you wrote a book about it. Um, now you're looking at this crisis. So what do you see that uh, from your research that might help us understand where the US uh, Jewish community is? Well, I think over the last several years, um, a US Jewish community that was you know, it never had backtracked from its support for Israel. And the recent Pew study shows that American Jews are essentially as, in many ways, emotionally attached to Israel as ever. Yet what you've seen, though, uh, gradually, I would argue, over the last 10 years 
is not necessarily a sliding decline of support, but I would say a sliding, um, you know, and a growing uncertainty and ambivalence. And that I intensified over uh, the Trump Netanyahu alliance, uh, and especially with Netanyahu's various kinds of interventions into American politics and support of Trump, which I think, you know, further fractured um, American Jewry in many ways, because traditionally American Jews not only been pro-Israel, but more progressive, more democratic, again, something that the Pew study again demonstrates. Uh, and then here you had this kind of unholy alliance from some views between Netanyahu and Trump. And so that created even more tensions. Uh, meanwhile, uh, there was a kind of, I, I think that actually opened up the door to a greater reconsideration among many American Jews about who Israel is, who is this Israel that's embracing Trump, who we think is in many ways anti-American or not necessarily the best thing for American Jews. And so I think there was already a kind of evolving reassessment uh, and, and the recent events, I think, pull American Jews in two different directions. Uh, remember, this all began over um, the Israeli decision to evict Palestinian residents from parts of East Jerusalem, which many people had begun to connect to a kind of broader systematic policy on the part of Israel to discriminate against its non-Jewish residents and citizens. So that had already begun, you know, although most American Jews are unwilling to say the A word, apartheid, uh, they began to dance around it in a variety of ways that I thought was really quite extraordinary and something of a turning point. The Human Rights uh, Watch then, report come out just before this began. That's right. So I think that there were, you know, it, I think it was becoming more difficult, certainly for the progressive and I think the J Street wing and even some middle of the road American Jews uh, to square their own liberal values uh, and to square their own, you know, recent embrace of Black Lives Matter and the kind of principles underlying that with what was going on in Jerusalem. And so I think, you know, you're already having, you were beginning to have to make very tough choices. And these tough choices weren't just simply about how do I balance my, you know, emotional ties to Israel with Israeli policies that sort of violate my first principles. But I think what was also happening was that there was a changing frame. Uh, for how to understand Israel and the Palestinians. And I think up until just the last year or so, the frame was still about solving Israel and Palestine as if it was an interstate conflict. Uh, and that would require painful compromises on both sides, but they would be heading for a divorce. Uh, because of the absence of any peace process and a variety of other things. And then, you know, couple that with what was taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, I think the frame became as becoming much more about Palestinian rights 
-hmm. and not rights of self-determination, but more basic human rights. And that becomes really more of a domestic matter. And so I think what's happening is that American Jews are in many ways uh, treating the Palestinians in some ways as you would think about African-Americans in this country. So I think the tensions have gotten much greater. So while the Israeli-Hamas war, you know, in some ways distracts us from what I think is the core issue, um, and, it, and many people who are pro-Israel can still, you know, roll out the chance that Israel has a right to defend itself, uh, at the end of the day, there will be a ceasefire and you will still be left with Israeli policies towards the Palestinians, which will continue to have the taint of apartheid. And I, I think that leaves American Jews in a very difficult situation. Uh, the, the disconnect, as you've written before, the disconnect between kind of broad liberal Jewish opinion and kind of the official, you know, representatives of the Jewish community in the policy realm, that's existed for a long time. Is there anything different about that today? Well, I think one of the things that's, that, that is a bit different, and you can see it, um, uh, you know, today on Capitol Hill, is I, I think that that bipartisanship that really was a hallmark of US policy towards Israel is broken down. And one of the things that's happened as it's broken down is it's created space for alternative, you know, more radical or more progressive voices on, on the left in, in, you know, on the Hill and in other places to begin to raise issues like maybe we should be holding up arms sales maybe we should no longer be providing the kind of aid that we've been doing. I mean, I think there are a lot of tools that have been certainly at, you know, part that could have been used in American foreign policy towards Israel that were always seen as taboo. You just can't go there. People are going there now. Uh, they're all, and, and I think part of the reason they're going there is not only because of conviction, but also because there's an American Jewish community that's not unified and is not providing the same kind of political defense for Israel in American politics. I think APAC, which has always been, you know, the guardian angel for Israel in American politics, is having a very difficult time dancing around this one. It, it is hard. Is there anything new about American attitudes towards this? Uh, we asked Shipley Telhami. He's the Anwar Sadat Chair for Peace and Development at the University of Maryland, and he's been running surveys about American attitudes towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for decades. Shibley, thanks for joining us. So Shibley, you've been just, you've been researching uh, trends in American public opinion and foreign policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for some time. What do you see that's happening that's new? You know, the fascinating thing is that we've been uh, noticing shifts in public opinion uh, toward Israel-Palestine for a decade now. Um, I've written about it quite a bit, as you know, and um, um, it's happening mostly among Democrats. I mean, the truth of the matter is that's really where the principle changes, because in fact, Republicans have come have become even more pro-Israel than before. So that it's the Republican change is, is different from the Democratic change. But as uh, uh, you know, uh, 
the polarization increase, so did uh, the democratic uh, rank and file position on Israel-Palestine shift away from the Republicans. There were already, you know, kind of uh, different variables that are impacting this change. Uh, but what we noticed in, in one of the, you know, the, the, the long-term questions I asked that I asked the first time over three decades ago wow. when I was a professor at Ohio State University. In fact, one of my first academic articles with John Krosnick in, in uh, um, you know, International Studies Quarterly was on the issue publics after a poll that we actually conducted on American public attitudes on Israel. And, uh, you know, what we had seen historically is that the American public, you know, was mostly neutral, wanted uh, to, to the U.S. to lean toward neither side. By the way, that has not changed. But it used to be over among those who really care, who want the U.S. to take a position, usually about a quarter of the population, um, overwhelmingly toward Israel, whether it was Democratic or Republican. Over time, this shifted dramatically, uh, with, with Republicans be, becoming more pro-Israel, and Democrats becoming overwhelmingly neutral. Uh, and even the last poll we did last year on this issue in August 2020, um, we had um, among those who Democrats who wanted to take sides, they were slightly in favor of taking side toward the Palestinian than the Israelis. So that, that's a, a big generational divide here, too. Yeah, uh, un undoubtedly. I, I think what, when you look actually, which, which are the strongest um, uh, you know, constituencies that have leaned more toward the Palestinians, you're looking at the below 35, you're looking at African-Americans, you're looking at Hispanics, you're looking at women, the growing portions of the Democratic Party. And that's why there's been a demographic trend, even Asians as well, by the way. Um, so that's one. Um, second, you know, they, they, there has been um, kind of uh, a huge gap uh, that we notice between where uh, the, the, uh, the public is and where the elected officials are. In fact, interestingly, in the last poll, we asked this directly. Uh, we asked the public, you know, it is, is it your view that your elected officials in Congress lean more toward Israel, lean more toward the Palestinians, lean toward neither side? And the interesting thing is across the board, even Republicans said, a majority of every single group said that their, their perception is, those who know, of mm -hmm. course, uh, their perception is that their elected officials lean more toward Israel. Among Democrats, that's two thirds. Wow. Um, that's two thirds. And I have, you know, um, I, I remember writing a piece for the Washington Post monkey cage. You probably were involved in that back in, in 2014, mm -hmm. uh, in which I said there's this gap uh, is bound to have impact on the, on the position of, of members of Congress over time. So we've seen that. The third is um, something that is less understood is that it's not just that they've tilt shifting in their positions. It is also that they want to see far more action on this. For example, on settlements, we've been documenting that, you know, um, nearly 60% in some cases of Democrats uh, wanted to see sanctions applied over the settlement expansion. Uh, and that's been consistent. We've seen this year over year. I mean, this, this has not shifted all that much in the past five, six years. It's been like that. And you could see now with the recent Gallup poll, uh, which showed 53% um, of Democrats want uh, to 
the U.S. to apply more pressure on Israel uh, over the uh, uh, to to advance peace. Uh, the the big yeah. Let's quickly look then how that's playing out in the current crisis and look at what's happening in Congress, where we're seeing some pretty remarkable uh, uh, kind of shifts in the way uh, the Senate and Congress are approaching this compared to previous crises. Uh, Undoubtedly. Um, I mean, it is unprecedented when you have multiple members of Congress go to the floor uh, and criticizing Israel in the way that it was criticized last week by uh, not just progressives, mostly progressives, but mm-hmm. other members, uh, uh, yeah, other Democrats, uh, criticizing uh, Israeli behavior and the occupation in ways that we have not seen in a long, long time. Uh, well, ever. I don't really ever, I, I don't remember ever seeing this kind of cluster of views. And, um, we, you know, and now you have um, uh, the chair of, of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, take the position uh, that perhaps the U.S. should uh, withhold the delivery of uh, guided missiles to Israel until further investigation. That That's unprecedented happening. Now, what's interesting is that they're beginning to feel the heat of the public because you could see the sentiments and, and that's already transmitted itself in the media. You can see that the media is far more critical. Um, you've had a lot of personalities who prepared to break kind of taboos on this issue of, of uh, the role of Israel. Uh, and um, they also see what happened in the past couple of uh, uh, primaries uh, in, in the Democratic Party, uh, where um, it isn't only that progressives won uh, who are critical of Israel, but it is that that, ish, that was an issue in the actual election meaning their opponents were much more pro-Israel. There was much more money that went in that direction. Uh, and they made an issue. They, they actually used this on the offensive as the case of uh, Congressman Bowman from New York, uh, who, who basically criticized his opponent for, for not being uh, sensitive enough uh, to, to Palestinian uh, interest in Palestinian rights. So, so even, even centrist senators are now signing on to this letter. Yes, uh, like uh, like uh, Senator uh, Chris Van Hollen, who has been very out, you know, who who is considered to be moderately pro-Israel, um, who has clearly uh, been asserting himself on some even-handedness on 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 this issue. And 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 keep in mind, by the way, that in this environment, um, members of Congress are very reluctant to take on a democratic president. I mean, we're still very polarized as public opinion beyond this issue, and they don't want to weaken a democratic president. He's got his hands full, and they agree with him on the pandemic, on the economy, on racial issues, all of the questions that he's dealing with. So they don't want to take him on too much. And privately, they criticize him far more. And publicly now, many of them are coming out and saying they're concerned. And when you get, I mean, here's here's the, the oddity of it is when you get um, a, uh, you know, members of Congress who are staunchly pro-Israel, like, Sen- that like, like Senator Menendez, uh, or uh, several uh, pro-Israel members of the House, going out and express concern um, ab- about uh, Israeli behavior while the President of the United States is not, that really puts in perspective what's going on here. And, and that's why I called, uh, you know, in my comments that the, the uh, President Biden's uh, reaction is a throwback to another era 
of, of democratic political culture because there's a transformation taking place that has taken place on this issue that he's not really coming to grips with. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special edition of the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast focused on the current Israeli-Palestinian crisis. This crisis raises big questions for the academic field, for policy, for the people affected by what's happening. And we hope that by bringing together all of these scholars who spent their lives studying these issues, we've been able to make some small contribution to understanding what's happening now and what it might mean. And we hope that this will be the beginning, not the end of ongoing discussions uh, within our academic networks and with the broader public. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you.